it's, it's attracting highly, highly qualified, highly intelligent, highly capable people. That will allow us to then rapidly grow our economy. We need to be writing the software. We need to be innovating. We need to be finding the solutions. My wife and I had a traumatic experience in Johannesburg. We were in a shopping center and guys came in and opened fire on us. And I was lying on top of my wife under a bench in the shopping center to protect her. So in my early 30s, I was sitting right at the top of the tree doing a lot of stuff that most people don't get the chance to do in their life. Never waste a good crisis. This, and, and off the back of that is always find the adversity, always find the opportunity in the adversity. No change will be successful unless people understand the need for change. Hey there, my name is Daniel Franco and this is the Creating Synergy podcast, your business and leadership podcast where we speak to high profile leaders and thinkers about their careers and dig deep by asking the questions we all want the answers to, uncovering their stories, strategies, leadership lessons and their secrets to success. So before we jump into the podcast, I wanted to start this one a little bit differently and put an ask out there for everyone listening in. We've been looking at the data lately and noticed that many people who listen to this podcast haven't actually subscribed to it yet. It would mean the absolute world to me for those who are listening in to subscribe. By doing so, the more subscribers we get, the more high quality leaders and experts we get on the podcast and share their stories with you. And from that, the more we all learn. So thanks in advance. Everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, and today we have a truly remarkable guest with us, Sean Westcott, the CEO of Mitsubishi Motors Australia. Now, I've known Sean for quite some time, having collaborated on some projects with Mitsubishi, but I must confess I was a little nervous about this conversation, as Sean is not only just an exceptional leader, he is a profound thinker. The speed in which he learns and his ability to retain information is like no one else I've ever seen before. And Sean's journey is fascinating. Born and raised in South Africa, Sean shares with us his learnings from the South African military, where he rose through the ranks at a rapid speed to the corporate world dealing with HR and IR issues where some people in his company were beheaded. Yes, you heard me correctly, beheaded for breaking a working strike. So from here, we deep dive into his time in various senior leadership roles at Coca-Cola before he shares stories of true innovation and thought leadership in his role as CEO at AC Witcher, a forestry company that he turned into a global powerhouse, all in the midst of the 2008 global financial crisis. We learn Sean's process to think outside the box and pivot into areas in which the market demands. It's a no-frills approach, but astonishingly effective. In 2017, Sean, his wife and his two daughters picked up their lives and headed for South Australia, to which they now call home, after experiencing a traumatic event when shopping at a department store where some thugs walked in with automatic rifles and started shooting up the place with bullets ricocheting past his two daughters and wife. It was that moment they decided they needed to leave South Africa. After landing here in South Australia in Adelaide, Sean held the role of CEO at HMPS, a robotics company, before deciding to take on a role as director and after sales at Mitsubishi, and within the next 12 months was promoted to the CEO role of Mitsubishi Australia. The fastest ever promotion to CEO in Mitsubishi Australia history. His leadership has seen Mitsubishi Australia become a world leader across the whole company. 
So throughout this chat, you'll learn Sean's leadership philosophy and his approach to large-scale transformation and high-performing cultures, his insights on the future of the automotive industry and his vision for electric cars and how he balances the relentless demand of being a CEO with family and personal well-being. This was an absolute epic conversation with so many pearls of wisdom. So without further ado, let's dive into the world of Sean Westcott. So welcome back to the Creating Synergy podcast. Today, we have a really remarkable human being, uh, Mr. Sean Westcott, CEO of Mitsubishi. Welcome, Sean. Thank you, Daniel. Great to be here with you. Um, look, we've known each other for quite some time now and um, we know we've done a little bit of work with you guys at Mitsubishi and I must say I'm, I'm, I've been very excited but I'm very nervous about today's conversation. You are an exceptional leader and I feel like um, I've got to lift my game a little bit to, uh, to even be on this table with you. So, uh, yeah, really looking forward to deep diving further into your story. Thank you, Daniel. You're very, you're very complimentary. <laughs> <laughs> so... For us to understand who is Sean Westcott, we have to understand your earliest context. So are you able to sort of give us a little bit of understanding about your earliest uh, context, your your early life, your childhood life, and and, um, how you eventually came to uh, sit in front of us today? Thank you, Daniel. Yes, uh, so my roots are South African. I was born in South Africa, raised in South Africa. My dad was a farmer, so I grew up on a farm, experiencing yep. the freedom and the liberties of growing up on a farm and having the most glorious childhood you can yep. imagine. What were you farming? So my dad was he was principally a dairy farmer, yep. but then we grew a lot of crops as well. So he, he diversified over a period of time into uh, sheep and yep. also cattle eventually. Yep. And then we put in a lot of irrigation for the, for the pastures, for the cattle, and extended that eventually into vegetable farming. So we did a lot of, of diversified farming over Beautiful. an extended period of time. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. And, so, and, and so what else? So where, in your younger years, is there, uh, is there anything that you look back on and, um, and you think about that just that makes you smile and, and, and memories that you've, uh, you, you look fondly on? Yes, I, I guess, and creating the relevance for where I'm at Mitsubishi today, I grew up on a farm uh, driving four-wheel drives, driving tractors, yeah. uh, driving motorbikes, exploring yeah. freedom, having that sense of adventure. Yeah. And it's, it's almost as if life's come full circle and I've come back to being at Mitsubishi. Yeah. And we sell SUVs and 4x4s yeah. and we sell vehicles that give you that freedom to enjoy adventure. So yeah. it's almost like life has come a full circle. Yeah, very good. Yeah. So you um, you are a bit of an adrenaline drunkie from my understanding too, aren't you? You've uh, skydiving and rally driving and all this sort of Absolutely, stuff. Absolutely, yeah. So what, what sort of appeals to you about the opportunity to kill yourself? <laughs> okay, because I, like, I am petrified of skydiving. Yeah. I stay heavy so I can't go I do it. Apparently yes. there's a weight limit. Yeah, <laughs> That's no, my so, excuse. So I, I guess uh, also to say that it's not only skydiving, it's also scuba diving. So oh, okay, you go it, under It's below well. the surface yeah. as well. So. I must admit I do enjoy the, the scuba diving. I yes. went for the first time a couple of months ago with yeah. my kids and it was uh, it was real fun. But yeah. so the adrenaline. It's the adrenaline. Yeah. And I guess uh, I'm a kind of person that enjoys stimulation. Yeah. So I'm always looking for something new and something exciting and something adventurous to do. Yeah. So uh, that's just the way I'm hardwired. What's, what's next on the uh, bucket list? Well, bucket list uh, of the things that I haven't done, I've, I've climbed Kilimanjaro. I've, hey, well. as I say, I've scuba dived. I've scuba dived in some of the best places in the world. I've done a lot of that type of stuff, but on the bucket list that I haven't done yet is a visit to the Antarctica. So that is still on the bucket list. Oh, yeah. Wow. That would be amazing. Yeah. 
A lot of white. <laughs> a lot of white, but also that the majestic, uh, yeah, un- uninhabited, the ice, the animals. It's fantastic. 100%. Yeah, looking forward to that. 100%. So you, you mentioned your uh, your dad there and um, you, did you, your mother, what what did she do? Was she just yeah, working so on the farm as well? She was working on the farm. So, yeah. so my mom did all the books, did all the admin, yeah. Yeah. basically ran the business. Uh, but also my dad had other businesses as well. So yeah, okay. he was also into the retail. So we had uh, various shops and things like that. Yeah, great. And my mother was kind of looking after that side of the business to a large degree. Very good. Yeah. And um, so so what influence did that have on your life? Obviously, it introduced you to business very early. Um, did, it did. Did you, were your father and your mother like really good role models for you? They were, they were Daniel, very influential and a lot, a lot of who I am and what I am today, I guess, is influenced by that. There's always this question of whether it's hereditary or whether it's from yeah. your yeah. – I think it's a bit of both. Absolutely. So I, I inherited an entrepreneurial spirit, spirit from my father yeah. and uh, give it a go. And for anyone who's ever farmed, you know that you're always on the edge. If yeah. it's not floods, it's famine. <laughs> yeah. It's droughts. And if it's not droughts, it's pests. You know, yeah. There's always some kind of challenges. So uh, also learn to be resourceful and yeah. also to be resilient. So growing up in those kind of a, a very you, – you're very dependent upon nature and nature, as we, as we all know, if you're a farmer, is one year drought, next year yeah. floods. You know, So it's those uh, almost extremities and within that you have to learn to be fairly resilient and smart to work your way through it. Absolutely. Was there anything that your parents said to you early on um, that you think was pivotal or was there anything that used to, they used to drum into you? Like for example, my parents growing up, the, the one thing that they repeated almost daily was there's no such word as can't, right? Yeah. Like you can – whatever you put your mind to, you can do. And was there anything similar that you learned from yeah. your – I think your parents and my parents listen to the same podcast. <laughs> yeah, probably. There's no such thing as a can't yeah. be done. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> where there's – my dad always used to say where there's a will, there's a way. 100%. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. So so what does your life look like? You're a child growing up on a farm and then eventually one day – I mean you go through schooling and then eventually one day you decide that you're going to join the military or were you – Yes, no. So we actually had no choice in that. No choice. So in South Africa at that point in time, it was compulsory for all males to do military service. Yeah, wow. So we all had to spend a minimum of two years in the military. And Is that then, still compulsory today? No, not, no. not any longer, yes. Post the new government in uh, 1992, that all ended. All, all ended. Yeah, so that all ended. But that was a fairly significant and formative phase in my life, if I can say that, because... How old were you? Uh, I was... I actually finished school quite early. So I was 16 when I did my grade 12 matric- okay. when so I matriculated. Smarter than everyone else? Well, I, st- <laughs> I started school young. Okay. I started at the age of five, which in South Africa, most people started at the age of six. So okay. I was kind of a bit before Just the... Jumped in. I was always the youngest in the class through, yeah. through the whole of school. And that's a lot, not always a necessary, necessarily a good thing because right. you're always the youngest, you're always the smallest. Yeah. And you kind of get picked on as well. So yeah. It was an element of, of a bit of, I guess, looking back on it in life, a little bit of bullying. Yeah. But having grown up on a farm and, and growing up tough and, and being resilient, I guess that was one of the ways we nav- I navigated through that. Mm. So there's not always being an advantage being yet the youngest in your class. No. But being that as it may, I joined the military and I was – we first had to do our basic training. And during that course, or during the basic training, we were – or I was fortunate enough to be identified as somebody with leadership potential. They put us through batteries of tests, and obviously there was the physical tests that go with yeah. that. And I then so what, what what did they see? Do you, do you know what they saw in you to identify? I mean, obviously your ability to learn at a young age was yes. uh, was critical. But yeah, what what was some I, of I those guess traits? what happened, uh, Daniel, is that 
being in the military, we, we were all in well squads and platoons. Yeah. And very soon within within first, I was made what they called the bungalow bull. Yeah. So in our bungalow, I was put in charge of the bungalow. Yeah. Okay. And then I was made a squad leader. Yeah. So I think they 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 saw that I took the lead, yeah. and I I. And the whole intent of military is to be physically fairly um, arduous. Yeah. And I was always encouraging and motivating guys and going, guys, we can do this. Let's work together. Let's okay. do this. Yeah. So I think they saw that and then they put me through a battery of tests, as I said, and I was selected for officer's course. And I guess for me that was fairly formative because that was my first introduction to leadership. Mm. And that cre- and that first uh, – that created the foundation for the rest of my leadership career, I would say. Not that uh, military leadership is, is necessarily the only way of doing it. It's fairly autocratic. Mm. Um, and I've, through life I've learned that there are many other leadership styles that can work very effectively. But that was very much the foundation of my leadership. Mm. And, and what was that foundation? What, what do you look back on and go, that's probably stuck with me throughout my career? Yeah, I, I guess I realized the, the importance of people and the, the, the importance of motivating. Mm. And what I noticed with a lot of the drill instructors and the sergeants and the, and the corporals that we had, it was, uh, it, it was almost as if the intent was to break you down and mm. to dehumanize you. Mm. And when I became an officer, I took a slightly different approach. And I'd seen that work when, when the corporals were shouting and screaming at us and I would go, guys, we can do this, let's work together. And I found I'd, 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 at some subconscious level, I realized that it was actually working better mm. than the screaming and the shouting. And I tried that out as an officer and I found that my unit performed best. In fact, I was selected as the only national service officer to train an elite unit. So even once I'd been an officer, the platoon that I was in charge of performed so well that they then, of, of all the, we call them national service lieutenants, I was lieutenant at that point, of all the national service lieutenants, I was the one that was selected to again train a specialist unit. And I think what that taught me in life is that leadership is a lot about people, but it's about getting people engaged, about keep getting people motivated and getting people to work together as a team. And that is far more powerful than the screaming and shouting and de- dehumanizing and autocratic type style of leadership. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love it. So, I mean, in this, this time in the military, I mean, how long were you? Yeah, so we had two years of compulsory military service. Yeah. And after two years, we went back to civilian life. Yep. That's typically when most of us went to university and studied. Yep. But once you were back in civilian life for a period of time and it, it changed, at, at the time when I was it was for 10 years. So for 10 years you had to do what we called camps. So on an annual basis you were called up and you had to do, depending on what the circumstances were, and at that time South Africa was fighting both a conventional and a guerrilla warfare, yep. um, we had to do anything between one and three months of service on an mm. annual basis. Okay. Yeah. So 10 years you were there? So te- 10 years ten in years. and out. So you had in your civilian life said, yeah. and you lived your, your normal life. And that's life. when you went and studied? Yeah, so that's when I studied. And I, I guess what happened there is, um, again, the military was, was quite influential in what I chose to study. And and I think in one of our discussions you said to me, what, what, is, what is unusual about you yeah. and, and what is unconventional and what is what, something that people don't know? And... What is probably unusual is that I actually started my career in human resources. I'm a CEO today, and not mm. many people go, come from human resources to become a CEO. No. Now, the reason I chose to study human resources is the one thing that I learned in the military, and, and what I needed to learn more about was I had this desire to learn more about leadership mm. and about people and what motivates people. Yeah. So 
when I looked at, at the university degrees that were available, so I, I, I realized that I had the, a, a natural calling, if I call that, to be a leader, and I enjoyed being a leader. And I wanted to study in a field that would give me more insight into leadership, leadership practices, people, people behavior, et cetera. And the course that I identified at university that was able to do that for me was human resources. It included a bit of industrial psychology, it included a bit of understanding around human behavior, around motivation, about, around morale, around leadership. So I selected that as, as a degree course. And I was very fortunate that uh, Anglo-American Corporation, which was at the time one of the largest mining companies in the world, mm. um, was very kind or kind enough to uh, put me on a scholarship program. And I ended up going to university and studying in human resources. Brilliant. And and so, yeah, because we, we did speak about this last time and it was um, it is unconventional because further to that, you then your next uh, line of study was marketing. Yeah. Which was like, again, still going down a direction that doesn't normally point towards yeah, so, a so, CEO. So it's actually quite interesting. Uh, what, so when I enrolled for my degree, I started studying and I realized that I had a lot of spare capacity. Mm. The other thing, so the, the degree is, although it was a human resources degree, it was actually a commerce-based degree. So I was studying okay. economics, I was studying business economics, okay. yeah, yeah. and I was studying uh, accounting. So I had all of those as subjects as well. Mm-hmm. But in the course of studying the business economics subject, uh, I realized that to be a true business leader, you needed, I needed to have a broader base of skills, experience, and knowledge. Yeah. And what business economics did, it opened, it opened my eyes to all the various functions. Now, my dad, having been in his own businesses, wasn't a big corporate, I suddenly realized there were a whole lot of other functions out there yeah. that, I, needed, that I, I realized I needed knowledge in. So what I did is I had spare capacity, so I approached the university and said, I'd actually like to study um, an additional degree simultaneously. And they said, well, you can't do that. No. <laughs> so I said, well, I'd like to do that. So they said, well, how are you going to fit it in? So I said, well, what I could do is do the human resources degree in the daytime and I could go to night classes and do the marketing. So I'd identified marketing and sales management. So that, that course included a whole of uh, consumer, consumer psychology, marketing and uh, sales management. Yeah. So I said, well, I could do night classes on that. And they said, well, that's, that's not possible. <laughs> Long story short, we, they put me through a whole battery of tests as well, had a, a, a fair number of battles. It was eventually escalated to the vice chancellor. And uh, long story short, he finally gave permission for me to do that. So I was actually studying second year human resource degree, first year marketing and sales degree simultaneously. And then I completed both degrees simultaneously a year apart. And then uh, with day, day and night classes. So that, that gave me a much broader you're, scope. You're superhuman. Uh, <laughs> no, no, well, I, I, so, so the other thing that I really do enjoy is uh, the acquisition of knowledge. I, I, I appreciate that. Yes. <laughs> but, yeah. but that's a lot. And I think from someone at such a young age, yeah. Yeah. Was, um, are you, what's your IQ? Are you, are you diagnosed a genius? I won't go there. <laughs> I won't go there but, but I do find studying and, that, uh, and you knowledge. You get energy from it. I get image, uh, I feed off of that. So yeah. through, you'll find if you track my career throughout my entire life, I have made sure that I continue to update my skills and stay relevant. Mm. And I think that's very important. So Absolutely. if you had a look through my CV, you'd see that I then, after that, I did an MBA, and then after that, I've studied at, at I've done courses at Harvard, oh, I've done courses at Oxford University. So I co- I've continued throughout my career to make sure that I'm a, that my current knowledge is relevant. So f- for um, I want to call out. I understand why you're doing that, mm. right? But what motivates you to to be relevant? Why? Yeah. Why? Why? And uh, look, it seems as if from such a young 
age you found this love with business and, and learning yeah. and studying and then you, you obviously moved into that. Yes. So I think there's a few questions here is what motivates you um, to, to continually be relevant but then on top of that, what actually no, before you answer the yes. question, can we, let's go back. Why did you decide to move away from the military? Is it because you wanted to pursue a career in business? Yes. So what I will say about the military, it has its limitations. Yes. Um, I found it a very autocratic environment, mm. a very almost dictatorial environment. And I believe that any leader that should – I have a couple of philosophies in life and one yeah. of those is that as a leader, you should try and learn something new every day of your life. Yeah, great. And – the source of knowledge is not only books and it's not only universities and it's not only degrees. It's actually, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a policy that I apply in business, is to surround yourself with bright people mm. and to try and learn something from those people every day of your life. Now, the military doesn't promote that type of uh, collaborative learning. Um, other people, if you surround yourself with really smart people, they have skills and knowledge. There's no single human being that can know everything about everything. So if you surround yourself with really smart people, you are pretty dumb leader if you don't listen to yeah. what they have to say. So I've found that consulta uh, consultative, collaborative leadership style where you surround yourself with smart people, ask them for their advice, ask them for their opinion, get their insight, and together you weave that together and you, you, form a, you, you come to a more sound and pragmatic solution often. And, and obviously you get insights that you may not have had before. Yeah, no doubt. So, so come back into your so, question. Yeah, come, yeah. so, so, so the other reason that I, uh, that I not only study a lot because I, I also expose myself a lot to mm. a lot of different things is that one of the things that, we've, that we're all conscious or should be conscious of is that the world is changing and that the pace of change is accelerating. Yes. And we all need to constantly adapt to survive and we need to learn and we need to grow and we need to um, surround ourselves not only with smart people but we need to embrace knowledge, understanding and experiences mm. to be effective. To be effective and, yeah, to make an impact on yes. – positive impact on this world. Yes. The um, – I mean there's so much in what you just said there. I think for me the – I want to ask a I want to ask a question from from that of someone who is potentially running a small business, where surrounding yourself with the with great people, there might be like a, the the lack of access to cash where you can get that, yes. those people in. Yes. And what what's your advice to those who are yes. running small to mediums where that's not necessarily an opportunity? I like your question. Yeah. So. When you're in a small business, you often you don't. There's just the scale of your, your business, and as you said, the, the number of people you employ. Um, obviously, people also come at a cost. Correct. So you don't you aren't able to do that. But what you can do, and what you should do, and for example, I might take myself as an example. Even as part of a big business, I belong to as many associations as I can. Mm. Now, here in South Australia, we have the Industry Leaders Fund. Yep. And I would encourage any young business leader to join the Industry Leaders Fund because yep. what you do is you join a network and it's not only peers. In that ILF, there are a number of senior business leaders. You have the opportunity through networking and whether it be Business SA and, for instance, in Business SA, we have the 39ers, yep. which, again, that's Business SA identifying up-and-coming young business leaders. Yep. And creating networks around them where they can actually gain access to people like myself and other people. 
And Which I'm part of. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and it's, it's great to have you there. <laughs> this is great, and, and that's and it's those opportunities. So go out, and 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 make yourself make yourself part of those networks. Engage with people. Have discussions. Have meaningful discussions with people. You can go, and again, it's what it's what you put in. I always I have another saying: life, life's an echo. Yeah. What you put in is what you get back out yeah, of it. Okay. Now you can go to these events and stand around and drink a few wines and have a few social chats, or you can go there and seek out people who have wisdom, who have insight, who have experience, who have understanding, and test ideas with them. And you'll find that most people are happy to pay it forward. Agreed. I am. I'm happy to pay it forward. I've, that's how we I've met. I've these gray hairs. Yeah, I think that's how we met. Absolutely. We that's how we met. We did. We met Absolutely. at an event. And I, yes. uh, well, I, was, yeah, I approached you and yes. said, you're up for a chat? And you said, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> and I, I believe there's good in all people. Yeah. And people are more than happy to, to share and to yeah. give and to support and to help. You just need to ask sometimes. Absolutely. Um, I see this quite often. I was at an event last night actually where there was sort of 300 plus people at this event and you, and you see some people who kind of congregate always to the same corner and yes. to the, with the same people and yes. it's just like there's so much opportunity here. There's so many great people yeah. in this room. You should walk yeah. around, try to meet yes. people, shake hands, meet someone yeah. new. I always uh, like to go to those events and say I want to meet someone new. I want yes. to learn something about That's that right. person. Yeah. Um, you know, like you said earlier, learn one thing every day. You might learn yes. something new. And, and I want to circle back, Daniel, and use you. You asked me why do I do all these uh, strange things, and I'll I'll tell you why I started doing them. Apart from the fact that I did a lot of those in the military, hmm. so I was rappelling or abseiling, as we called it, and doing yeah. all kinds of strange things that took me outside of my comfort zone. Hmm. And what I learned is that as a leader, you need to to grow. As a human, you need to sometimes take yourself outside of your comfort zone. Now, a lot of the sports I do or a lot of the activities that I do take me outside my comfort zone. But I want to come back to the example of even a social setting. Yeah. If we just surround ourselves with the same people that we always know and we always just chit-chat about social things, we've, we've created a, a cocoon or a bubble around ourselves. And to learn and to grow, like a lava coming out of a pupa, sometimes you've got to break that cocoon. You've got to yeah. break that mold. Yeah. You've got to break out of your comfort zone. You've got to go out and put yourself out there. You've got to go out and, and meet people who you've never met before. Engage like you and I did. Agreed. And yeah. have, start having conversations. And hopefully those conversations can and should add value. So this podcast was brought to you by Synergy IQ. I want to ask you a quick question. Are you tired of the roller coaster ride that change brings? Well, I reckon we've got to listen up because I think we've got something game-changing for you. It's time to buckle up and embrace the power of Synergy IQ. You see, change can be a real pain if it's not managed right. Turnover, disengagement, and confusion. It's enough to drive any corporate leader crazy. But fear not, my friend, Synergy IQ is here to unravel the complexity and create great change experiences for you and your people. We believe we've cracked the code with our research systems thinking approach. No more guesswork, no more wasted time. We break it down for you, saving you from missed deadlines and budget nightmares. And our promise, timely, cost-effective and top-notch outcomes. But it doesn't stop there, my friends. At Synergy IQ, we're all about the people. You see, your team is the secret ingredient to success. Together, we'll help you build a high-performing organization by introducing our approach that speeds up change and taps into your people's natural ability to think fast and execute successfully. So, it's time to say goodbye to chaos, confusion, and all those headaches. 
It's time to take charge and transform your organization. So if you're keen to help your business manage change in a way that no longer keeps you up at night, then check out synergyiq.com.au to learn more and book a chat with one of our transformation experts who can help you make sense of where to start. Yeah, I mean, growth is in the uncomfortable, right? Absolutely. I think, that, I think um, I, someone, I have this analogy which has stuck with me for so many years. It's like if you imagine you're at a, you know, you're going to a Coles or a Woolworths shopping center. Yes. Remember like the sliding doors that, yes. that, that, as, they, as they open? And it's like if you were an, uh, someone from a different planet and yes. didn't know that these doors, you're walking, you're walking, you're walking, and you're getting closer and closer and these doors aren't opening and it's like really you're like, hang on, what's going on here? Yes. And you keep walking, you keep walking, and all of a sudden, swoosh, the doors, the doors open. open. Right? And that, and then yes. you, and they have the ability to walk through. I think I kind of I really just apply that with my life. Is yes. that you've got to be uncomfortable for those doors to Absolutely. open. Absolutely. Absolutely. I like that analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in regards to – no, so I want to actually talk – you mentioned Anglo-American Association where you yeah. were um, where you were in the HR and I, yes. IR role. You did – like in South Africa at the time, you saw some pretty horrific and traumatic stuff. Is that – It was. Is, I think yeah. there was – I, I recall yeah. a story about a potential sh- a strike. Yes. Can you explain that? Yeah, so if you go back, South Africa has quite a, a – a tumultuous and conflict-ridden past. And during the time that I was in human resources, the country was going through some tremendous political pressures and change. Yeah. And working for Anglo-American Corporation, the, the, the voice of the people was the trade unions, and the trade unions became very, very powerful. And during the time I was in human resources at Anglo-American, we had a very significant strike in 1986. And... It was fairly traumatic. So, so, so Anglo-American Corporation recruited people. And the other thing about South Africa is it's very multicultural. And, for example, we have 11 official languages. Yeah, wow. So that just gives you an idea of the size and the diversity of the population. Well, like different languages, like dialect? Totally or? different languages. Yeah, wow. As in, and, and majority of those would be what we would call black languages. Yeah. So they are from indigenous people in South Africa okay. who speak different languages. But they also have different tribal affiliations, and the trade union strength was in a particular was in the in the Kosa and the Zulu tribal sort of base. Yeah, and some of the people who weren't in that would would actually try and go to work, and the, the it was all pretty horrific. They would put tires around people, fill them with petrol, set them alight, and burn them to death. Yeah, uh, wow. We would go around in the morning sometimes and find people who broke ranks and try to go to work decapitated. You'd find heads lying and there and bodies lying there. So, <laughs> what you saw? Yeah, so so it was pretty. I was in I was in industrial relations at the time. So and you saw all this. We were in the cutting edge of that. I was not only seeing that. I was in the room negotiating with the trade union across the table that was perpetrating those type of atrocities. So it was uh, it was very conflictual. It was very tough. It was very challenging. But did, did the people? Who were going to work know that this was going to happen? Like that there was. They were, gonna... but there's a level of desperation. So if you're poor and hungry and your family's starving, and you have to stay off work, and some of these strikes were lasting six weeks, two months. Oh wow! You would be without food. Your family would be desperate, and you'd break ranks and say, "I'm going to work." And the only way that they kept the discipline was actually to kill people. So it was a fairly violent part in of our history, um, yeah, and wow. unfortunately, I was at a, at, right in the heart of it. How do you how do you compartmentalize that? How do you 
remove those visions from your head like that that seems to be something that's I think they stay with you for the rest of your life yeah yeah but it also so what you what I've tried to do from that is learn on how to not descend to that level and the world we live in today has a lot of uh, trauma there's a lot of things happening around the world geopolitically yeah and I guess what I would advocate for people is avoid it at all costs work work collaboratively work together try and stay away avoid getting into those depths of depravity you talk about a toxic culture i mean did you, <laughs> do, you um, do you ever um like did, why did you stay in that role for how long or how long were you yes yeah, so i was in that role for a short period of time okay. i was uh, fortunately anglo-american then also identified me as having what they called high potentials yep. also through a series of tests and, and various things so they tested a lot yeah i was I've, <laughs> I've been doing that my whole life for some reason <laughs> But what they did is they put me on a management development program. So they realized that I had skills beyond just human resources. Yeah. So they put me on a, on a management development program, which is a two-year program. And it was for what they called high pots, high potentials. And I wasn't the only one. There was a select group of us that yeah. were on that. It was a two-year program and I finished it in nine months. <laughs> so they went, okay. It was, it, it, it was self-paced. So it, it was you, could, yeah. you had modules and various aspects of the business and you needed to go all through. With high, all, all with high distinctions on these courses? Yeah, so uh, yeah. there was a fair bit of that. Yeah. So, but it wasn't only the academic aspect of it. So you, you'd have to complete the modules and then yeah. you'd have to do practical. So that was a fantastic experience. That was really good yeah. because it exposed me to different aspects of the business. So you'd, you'd do the theoretical module on yeah. that business and the theories on, and, and management practices and policies and procedures and processes for every aspect of the business. And then you actually were deployed in that part of the business and you'd actually have to work in that. So I've worked in everything from public relations to human resources to you name it. I've, I've worked in every function of business except for I haven't worked in IT and I haven't worked in finance. Okay. Now, I've, I've studied finance and I've done an MBA. I mean, I understand you know finance. finance you can, you can read it. But I've actually not worked as an accountant no. that way and I haven't worked in IT. Only two areas of business that I haven't worked in. Well, look out world. Uh, <laughs> that's where <laughs> yeah. IT get. Well, I mean, IT is the, is the new language, right? It is the new language. But again, the fact that I don't work there doesn't mean that I don't understand the importance no, of things like cyber security and and in fact, what, well, you need to. So, so absolutely, and and that's if we if we do a quick segue into that is that is one of the mass massive opportunities for the future is artificial intelligence. Yeah. And working back from that is the whole digitization, automation, and robotics. So I also had the the fortune of being the CEO of a, an automation and robotics company along the way, and just understood the power of the future and improve productivity and efficiencies and and gains that would allow us to substantially accelerate the economy, even in places like Australia, if we were to embrace that more readily. Well, I was going to ask questions about that later, but let's yeah. jump into it now while yeah. we're talking yeah. about it. So you're, you're um, you, yeah, you, you've quite, uh, well, you've come out and said that, you know, there is this talk of let's build South Australian yeah. population yes. and, and, and get yeah. to 2 million people and grow yes. population and jobs, 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 yes. jobs, yes. jobs. And you've kind of got like a different stance on that, yeah. which I, I actually really love. I, I do have... I have, I have a, a different take on it and the the challenge that we have, and this is not just an Australian prob problem, it's most developed countries in the world and even less developed countries like China are facing this, this problem now, is that of, that the population has peaked and that you actually have demographically the populations are reducing and mm. people are getting older and there's fewer young people coming into business. So we in Australia are challenged to find enough highly qualified, highly skilled people to do the jobs that we have to do. And, and one of those solutions in Australia does it very well. Is one of, the, in fact, Australia does it probably one of the best in the world. There's a few other countries that do it well. Is immigration, mm. and 
immigration is all good and well, but immigration, if you use it as a blunt instrument, in itself is not going to solve our problems because what it does do, and we all know that we have a housing crisis, for example, in this country, and the cost of housing is becoming unaffordable, and that's driven by supply and demand. The, the, the demand for housing exceeds the ability and the capacity to build it fast enough. Mm. And that's leading to these exorbitant housing prices. Uh, we're just talking housing. When you increase the population, you need more hospitals, you need more schools, you need more police stations, you need more railways, you need more roads. And, and you're not necessarily recruiting the right talent too. Exactly, absolutely. So Population growth is important because it's, it's one of the economics, economic stimulators, but it needs to be done in a very smart, we need to do it in a laser approach and not in a shotgun approach. Mm. We need to really be focused on attracting high caliber, highly qualified, highly intellectual people into our economy. And the reason for that is that we are not a low cost labor country and mm. we never will be. Our competitive advantage needs to be through our through intellectual capacity, mm. and that means bringing smart people. And you can buy, and as, as as I mentioned, I've been in the automation and robotics. You can buy a lot of solutions off the shelf. We actually need to get to the, to the point where we're not just buying other people's solutions, where we are actually developing solutions ourselves. Yeah, and that goes all the way back into academics and research and development. It's attracting highly highly qualified, highly intelligent, highly capable people. That will allow us to then rapidly grow our economy. We need to be writing the software. We need to be innovating. We need to be finding the solutions. And we need to be doing it in a way that doesn't require large numbers of people. And if I can do a quick segue into the business and the the Mitsubishi business and what we've done in Australia is we have significantly improved the business over the last couple of years that I've been there. And I guess... One of the questions I often get from government is, and other industry associations is, how many new jobs have you created? Yeah, and that's uh, that's their remit as a labour government. Absolutely, but that's also very much an industrial age way of thinking. Mm, What what you should what you should be asking me is, how much more tax am I paying? Because that's what's happened. (laughs) We've made the we've grown the business significantly, and we've made it significantly more profitable. Yeah, the same number of people, and that's through adopting automation and digitisation. So instead of having multiple spreadsheets, we've got software people in and we've written programs that allow us to extract and collate and package and put the information together. So suddenly we've taken, and I I can give many examples, where we would have to be putting together reports for our parent company that would have taken probably three or four days. After we've written the software, we can do it in three hours. Now we've given that individual all that time back in their life to do more value-adding things. So what you do is automate and digitize all the mundane, mm. repetitive, regular things. Yeah. You improve the accuracy of, of the information. And instead of having to ma- manipulate 20 or 30 spreadsheets, you have all the data presented to you in a dashboard and bang, you've got the information. You can make decisions much quicker, mo- much faster and more accurately. And so yeah. you can accelerate the pace at which you do business. You can improve the way you do things. So I think we should be embracing, we're living in the digital age and we should be embracing digitization and automation and it will allow us to improve the productivity, the throughput and the efficiency of our businesses significantly. Yeah. And and I'm talking a lot about digitization, but as I said, even in my role as the CEO of a robotics and automation company, we demonstrated to companies how you can improve your efficiency, improve it and compete. You can actually, through 
the correct application of automation of factories, we can actually compete with low labor cost countries. Yeah. Because our equipment works 24-7, never needs a holiday, doesn't need a pay rise, it doesn't go on strike, it doesn't give us any of the hassles that we sometimes yeah. have with deep, dark and dirty jobs. We can automate How those. How do you manage that? Oh, we, so we've recently interviewed Adrian Temple, who is chair of uh, the Productivity South Australian Productivity Commission. He's yes. also the CEO of Thomson Gear, yes. which is a big legal yes. firm. But he said to us on the show that South Australia is actually probably one of the least educated states mm. in regards to from if you, you're actually talking from degree level. Yes. Um, yes. So the, that poses a challenge is if we have and we automate the low-level jobs, which yes. is where the majority of our workforce is placed, yes. how do we upskill all those people yes. in being able to take on that higher? So, Daniel, you've taken me to another area that I have a passion for. <laughs> yeah, great. And, and that is uh, – and I'll, I'll use a lesson that I learned when I was with Anglo-American Corporation in South Africa. At the time, there was a dearth, a shortage of um, – advanced skills in the mining industry. So we couldn't find metallurgists and things like that. And South Africa was recruiting a lot of them as immigrants, particularly from the UK at that point in time. So we had a lot of British metallurgists working in our organization. And I was in human resources at Anglo-American at the time, and I said, guys, this is not the solution. We need to build our own talent. Mm, Correct. And what Anglo, cut a long story short, what Anglo-American did is they approached two, eventually three of the top universities in South Africa and they established faculties, and the company paid for it. Anglo-American put the money in, and they actually paid for the deans, and they paid for a number of professors, and they recruited high-quality caliber professors from around the world, brought them into these universities in South Africa as expatriates, and they paid them good sums of money. Some eventually became South African citizens. They remained there, and they continued to contribute to the economy. But what we did is we grew our own. We built our own talent. We built our own skills. Now, that's an area I'm passionate about. And I've had many of those discussions, even with our pre- Premier, Peter Malinaskis, is, for example, TAFEs. And the other thing I also want to say is we shouldn't just glamorize, we shouldn't just focus on universities. No. We should never underestimate the need, and we should glamorize more and more the need for TAFEs. Because our economy is built on technical skills. If I look at one of the most successful economies in the world, which is Germany, as a manufacturing economy, the, the power of what they've done is to actually, at, at probably about grade nine in school, you actually can select, select a vocational career or you can select an academic career. And a lot of people actually select and they become fitters, turners, electricians, they, they become tradespeople. Mm-hmm. And even if you look at our current housing shortage, what we need right now to reduce the cost of housing, more plumbers, carpenters, bricklayers, electricians, you name it. Yeah, we, we need to grow and we need to provide people with low-cost, affordable education opportunities. Mm. And TAFEs is part of the solution because we do need to upskill our labor force. Now, one of the challenges that – well, when I was the CEO of this automation company, I had a very heated discussion with somebody one day, and they said, oh, you're destroying jobs. I said, we can't even find – and I had discussions with the CEO of a, of a large company in the agricultural space. And he was going, we can't find people to pick our grapes. We <laughs> can't find people to pick our apples. And I said – we have to look at automation. Yeah. There are countries around the world, other high-cost labor countries, Europe being one of them, where they've learned how to plant vineyards and trees and things in a certain way that you can actually automate it. So instead of people doing backbreaking work, picking apples or picking grapes, yeah. we have machines that do it. Absolutely. The so it solves our labor problem. It solves our skill shortage. 
And it allows us to give people higher paid jobs. We upskill people and we pay them more money and they have a better standard of living. They're yeah. being trapped in those labor, low, what I call dark and dirty labor jobs that nobody wants to do. Yeah, 100%. We do a lot of work in the aged care industry and in health industry yes. as well. And um, my understanding, and, and, and don't quote me on these numbers, but there's there's like 10,000 nurses potentially, availability of yeah. nurses. Like where there's just no front line Absolutely. in that whole industry in Australia. Yes. And it's it's like there there isn't enough people to, yeah. to do that. So and the aged care industry have to look at automating because – Absolutely. Mm. And, and again and, – And the population is only going to get older, right? And, and not only in <laughs> Australia, in other countries yeah. around the world. And that, again, just screams opportunity yeah. because – there are countries in the world and we can quote them and we can visit them where a lot of those frontline services are automated. Mm. You have robots in rooms monitoring patients, mm. reacting, calling for help when the patient stops breathing. Yep. I mean, this, the, this technology is already available. Yep. Now, if we were to embrace automation and digitization in technology and we were to embrace R&D, we would be looking at how do we automate more of these tasks and how do we sell that technology across the rest of the world. Mm. And that's how Australia becomes a leader in the world, not a follower. Yeah. Stop buying it, start figuring it start out. Start building yeah. it yeah. and then sell it to the rest of the world yeah. because the rest of the world also has an aging population problem. So if we innovate in that space and we do develop automation, digitization, robotics that can do a lot of those functions, there's a massive opportunity. And so that's, that's what I'm advocating. That's yeah, what I'm so saying we should embrace as a country. Yeah. But to do that, we have to go back into the education, the academic chain, into the TAFEs, into creating people who think and act and – and, and approach life differently to what we've done. But how do we? How do we? I mean, the government is is labor government right now, which is like unions and mm-hmm. and and people jobs. Is yes. there's their remit? I, how, you're not you're going to shift that, are you? I'm, I'm going to give our premier full marks. Yeah. Because in discussions that I've had with him, and if you've seen one of the first things that our premier Peter Malinaskis did when he took over as premier was to look at opening more TAFEs. Yeah. So I actually think we're on the right track. We're on the right track. I think he's, despite whether he's Labor or Liberal, he's doing the right things. Yeah. Yeah. It's still jobs is there kind of. Absolutely. But but those do create jobs. But I I guess the the challenge that we have, uh, Daniel, is we need to start thinking differently. I can't find people to fill the vacancies I've got. Why would I create more vacancies? Yeah. So creating jobs is not our problem as a country any longer, yeah. not at the moment anyway. Yeah. Our, our challenge right now is finding talent, is finding skills, yeah. is finding people. Unemployment. So well, to fill the vacancies yeah. we've got. So why would we create a whole bunch more vacancies when we can't even fill the ones we've got? Makes sense. But then we need the technology and the cash to be able to do that, right? Absolutely. So it's just, it feels like we're stuck in a, in a way. Yeah, but again, it all goes – and this is where government has a role to play because it all goes back into those educational institutions, yeah. building those institutions, building the talent – and there's the simple analogy I have is if you have two people, one's been through a TAFE, and I'll use a very simple example, and he's been qualified as an electrician. And I don't have any degree and I have no qualifications and I have no education and I have no skills. I'm not marketable. Hmm. So if anyone's going to become unemployed, I'm going to become unemployed. Hmm. But even if that electrician were unemployed, he could walk around and knock on your front door and say, excuse me, sir, I'm a qualified electrician. Is there anything I can do for you? Can I put some lights in your garden? Can I, yeah, yeah. Is there something I can do? They, they have skills that are marketable that they could use to then establish themselves and create a business. Yeah. Whereas the poor guy who has nothing can end up sleeping on a bridge somewhere. Yeah. So it all comes back to educating our population and creating opportunity through education. With your um, – I mean, you've obviously put a lot of thought into this. What, what's the timeframes for this to start turning around? It's obviously not a one- to two-year thing. Yeah. It's a long-term. That's thing. right. It's a long-term. And I think f- as a country to position ourselves differently – 
and as a state to position ourselves differently, we do have to take a long-term. Anything that's worth having is we have to, and that's what good leaders do, is they go, what does the future look like? And they work back from there and say, okay, so where do I need to position myself? What do I need to do? To, to achieve that outcome, that end, that end game, that end goal. And it does require investment. It does require a different way of thinking, not short-termism, not two years, not four years, not three years. Yeah. We need to be thinking 10, 15, 20 years out, and we need to be thinking future generations, and we need to be thinking of our kids and going, can they afford a house? Will they be able to afford a house? Okay, we've got a problem. What do we need to do to fix mm-hmm. that problem? And, and most meaningful change is very considered, and it's long-term, and it's an approach. It's a way of thinking. I love it. I love it. Right. So let's just go back up that yes. rabbit hole for a moment. Absolutely. Let's get back into So you've, you've left Anglo-American uh, and then you've gone into Coca-Cola. Yeah, but before that, so what happened is that um, Anglo-American owned a lot of subsidiary companies okay. that, and they've since divested of those and yep. focused on their core business and they've become a much smaller company. Yep. But they owned companies in many different industries. One of those, uh, one of the things that we had in those days, in these days, underground mining is done with hydraulic props. Yep. I'm going back 30 years now. It was wood wood props. Yep. So we used to, and I, I was working for Anglo-American, which had the deepest mines in the world. I was working on Western Deep Levels, which is still, I believe, the deepest mine in the world, over three kilometers underground. Yeah, wow. So the, the rock pressures are extreme. The, the hot rock temperatures are also extreme. People got to work with ice jackets on, but be that as it may. One of the things that we used to do is um, support the, the overhang, which is the roof. So you're mining out, you're hollowing out the ground underneath. You need to put packs in underneath to support the ground, otherwise it all collapses. And we used to have lots of that and a lot of people used to die. So they owned forestry companies and they used to, and for the simple reason that that was one of the key um, requirements to build these props was wood. And they yeah. build these props underground that would hold up. So I ran out of a bit of space in terms of promoting and promotion opportunities. I was hungry and I was moving fast. <laughs> so one of the opportunities arose for me to join one of their subsidiary companies called Huntley, Shars & Hepburn, which was a forestry and uh, sawmilling company. Yep. So I joined that company and um, spent a few years there first before that was bought out by SAPI, which was the world's, I think still is the world's largest paper and pulp company, and they wanted to transfer me back to Johannesburg. Now, my wife and I had had a traumatic experience in Johannesburg. We were in a, we were in a shopping centre and guys came in with AK-47s and opened fire on us. And I was lying on top of my wife under a bench in the shopping centre to protect her from the bullets. And we left Johannesburg and... Well, just a random robbery? Is that what Random robbery. It happens all the time in South Africa. That's just... And hap- started shooting towards you. Yeah. So what they do is they just open fire and everyone screams and shouts and falls flat on the floor. And then they go into the shopping centres and they clean out the tools or clean out the safe and then escape. Oh, my goodness. So that happens all the time in South Africa. It's, it's, the, reason, it's the reason I left South Africa. Yeah, I the, the, the crime and the, and the violence in South Africa is just on a, on a different scale. Did you have kids at that time? I didn't. At that time, I didn't. So I was, I was working for Anglo-American Corporation, and I was in Johannesburg. We left Johannesburg, and I moved down to the Eastern Cape with this forestry and sawmilling company. Yeah. So it's Johannesburg, just out of curiosity, is that... It's co- the Sydney of South Africa. It's, it's the... it's the That's where the majority industrial, of crime is, though? Yeah, it's also where the majority of crime yeah. is, and it's also the industrial capital of South Africa. Yeah. So when Sappy bought out this company, they wanted to transfer me back to the head office in Johannesburg, and I said... No, thanks. That's not, hap- <laughs> that's not happening. So it was at that point that I got a job with uh, Coca-Cola. Okay. Yeah, so I moved into a role with Coca-Cola as the group industrial relations manager initially, yeah. and uh, at that time looking after... so. That was also a very interesting time and probably fairly formative in my life experience. 
So South Africa, because of its apartheid policies, had been a pariah state and there were many boycotts and many, many countries had exited South Africa, including Coca-Cola. So Coca-Cola had privatized their assets in South Africa and they were run as franchises. Okay. When Nelson Mandela came to power with the new government, that all changed. And Coca-Cola came back to South Africa and they bought back their businesses. Now, a lot of companies like General Motors had also exited. They also came back. So many multinationals who left South Africa came back and they reinvested in South Africa. But at the same time, the Soviet Union collapsed in 19, mm. around 1989. The wall came down. A lot of countries in Africa, there was a, a, a polarization in Africa. You either were, were with the West or you were with the Soviet Union. Yep. And the Soviet Union had pumped a lot of money into a lot of African countries, bought them in a, in a way, in but a also way, supported yeah. them economically and financially yeah. and also with guns and unfortunately many other things in mm -hmm. Africa still awash with guns. But because the Soviet Union collapsed, that economic support of many of those African countries and many of them were, they had what they called socialist governments, which are largely communist type of governments. And those were countries like Tanzania, Mozambique, and you keep going through the list. Those governments collapsed and a form of democracy emerged in Africa. But what had happened is that under communism or under socialism, as they call it, many of those countries had nationalized their assets, including the Coca-Cola factories. When that economic support ended, a lot of those companies um, were cash-strapped and they also didn't know what to do and how to do it. So Coca-Cola came back into South Africa, brought back into the South African business. I fortunately got recruited at that point in time because the, the company was on a massive expansion, on a growth expansion. South Africa, we had very good skills. So Coca-Cola used South Africa as the base to then go across a number of countries in South, East and Central Africa. And I was involved in those projects where we did a lot of, some of those brownfields, we'd actually go in and we were rebuilding factories that yep. were antiquated, outdated, putting in new, a lot of capital investment, new equipment, new machinery, new production lines. So you sort of operationalized it all? Is that yeah, that's right, yes. Yeah. So I was yeah. part of the team that would go in and then would obviously do the, the analysis of the business, yep. what state it was in. Some, some we'd just put in a bulldozer and flatten it and yep. rebuild it. Some were greenfield sites, so we identified opportunities in countries where there weren't factories and we built factories that hadn't been there. A lot of them were brownfield sites where we just went in and invested a lot and rebuilt it. So we had to rebuild the, those and... I was part of that, and that taught me a lot of a lot in life about business and business opportunities. So mm -hmm. we would go in and, uh, and literally sit down, and I, I was part of a team of five guys or six guys, and we had McKinsey working with us, and we would identify all the shortcomings, all the weaknesses, all the areas of opportunity, all the areas of growth, areas requiring investment, and that was everything from people to equipment to machines to trucks to distribution to manufacturing lines. So. I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about okay. building a business from the ground up, about looking at the financial, looking at the feasibilities, looking at the market, looking at the size of the market. So those are skills that I – and I was, I was very fortunate to be promoted. I was in senior, very senior management positions at a very young age. So I joined Coca-Cola when I, I think I was 29 at the time and in, in, in already in an executive position and then got promoted fairly rapidly off the back. So in my early 30s, I was sitting – right at the top of the tree doing a lot of stuff that most people don't get the chance to do in their life. In Coca-Cola South Africa, not, so, so this not was, so globally? It was, or? Yeah, so initially it was Coca-Cola South Africa. I became yeah. a country – I was one of the country managers for South Africa. Yeah. But then we – Coca-Cola so – it was, uh, it was called Coca-Cola Sabco, Coca-Cola South African Bottling Company. Okay. But then what we did is that company got dissolved and we created a new company called Coca-Cola Africa, of which Coca-Cola is the majority shareholder. Yeah. And the head office is still based in South Africa. Okay. 
and I was I was based in that head office in South Africa. So I got to travel a lot. I looked after many countries. So I got lots of exposure, many different languages, many different cultures, doing business in different environments. I uh, got to understand the business from the grassroots up, uh, investments, return on investments. It was it was a fantastic, in my early 30s, fantastic growth experience that has stood me in good stead for the rest of my life. No doubt, which yeah. is obviously where you, um, I mean, you, be, you went from, the CEO, uh, well, from the role at, uh, at Coca-Cola to COO role at AC yes. Witcher. AC yeah. Witcher and then uh, eventually became the CEO there. And yes. from my understanding, ter- completely turned that company around on the back of what you probably learned at Coca-Cola. Yes. So it was actually, it was a very interesting uh, journey that I was on. So what happened with Coca-Cola is eventually I was traveling so much across multiple countries and our Africa head office was initially in London and the global head office was in Atlanta. So I was doing a lot of traveling and I was seldom at home. And with a lot of these projects in Africa, you'd leave on a Monday morning and get back on a Friday night. And sometimes you'd leave on a Monday morning and get back on a Friday two weeks later. Yeah, well. So I got to the point where I... My, and you had kids at this I point. had kids, yes. I had kids who at the time were eight and ten. Two girls. Two girls. Two girls. Yes. And at, at one point, my wife and I sat down and I said, my daughter's eight, the younger one, and the older one is ten. She doesn't know if either went to work at eight and came home at five. Mm. Another eight years, and that one, my elder daughter, will be out of out of home, out of school, out of home, and gone. And she'll have never known a father who was present. Mm. So I decided I need a lifetime change, a, a, a change life. of life. life yeah. And I was on, on the board of a private school, and the chairman of that board liked my way of thinking. And I've been on the board for a number of years, so he knew my way of thinking, my strategic thinking, my approach. My, and and he'd, he'd asked me a number of times to join his company. And I was loving what I was doing at Coca-Cola, so I didn't take up the opportunity. But things kind of came together, and his brother, who was a partner in the company, was retiring, and he said, this is your chance. You have to come now, otherwise I'm going to take somebody else on board. And it was also at that point where I'd been with Coca-Cola for about 10 years, travelling extensively and excessively in that time, that the two things came together. And I I, I sat down with him and had an honest conversation. Now, his company was a private family-owned, medium-sized company in the industry that he was in. And the owner's name was Raymond. I said, Raymond, you need to understand that I am not a good, um, what's the right word, Uh, keeper of the current order. (laughs) I'm I'm a disruptor. I'm a disruptor. And I'm all about change and I'm about growth and transformation. And he said, that's exactly what my business needs. So, cut a long story short, he basically gave me an open checkbook and said, do what you have to do. So, one of the first things I did is I joined this company. It was a sawmill and forestry company. Yeah. And he knew so I'd been… Which he had experience Which in I had from. experience. So, he knew I had that experience. And he'd been… And, and in that company that I had been, I'd made quite a big change. And he yeah. knew that because I, we were in competition with each other. Yeah. So, he wanted me. Yeah. And the first thing I did, one of the first things we did was… We were in the sawmilling industry and we make planks. Now, planks are a commodity. A plank is a plank is a plank. <laughs> and we were supplying into the housing industry and the size and the dimensions, everything's regulated. Mm-hmm. So the only differentiator is price. Yeah. And I, the first thing I did was say, how can we differentiate ourselves as a commodity? How can I make us a lot more valuable than the competitor down the road? And the very first thing that I did was we started, I started looking globally and there were massive markets for us, opportunities in Europe. But the Europeans were very environmentally focused and joining the dots. And, and one of the opportunities that we had is we were growing Australian carry gum 
<laughs> I had no idea about it in Australia. Yeah, we were growing Australian carry gum in South Africa. In Australia, it's pre- very pre- protected and prescribed. In South Africa, it was an alien species, and we could farm it and harvest it as much as we liked. And, yeah. and ours, our business was all about sustainability. Yeah. You take one tree out, you replace it with another one. Otherwise, yeah. you don't have a business in 10 yeah, years' time. Correct. So it was all about sustainability. So we were <coughs> farming these trees in South Africa. Because that's sort of forest trees. We were farming trees, essentially. The Europeans, and particularly the Dutch, line their canals with timber. And because they're so environmentally conscious, they don't want any timber that's treated with t- – because you put timber in water, it rots. Yeah. And the way to stop that is to treat it with chemicals. The Dutch didn't want that because they said the chemicals would leach into the water and obviously pollute the water and sea life and everything yep. else. Yep. So this carry gum, which is used to make railway sleepers, is very extremely hardwood. And if you submerge it in the water, it'll be there for a few hundred years. Yeah, wow. So there was a massive opportunity for us. So what I did as an organization and to, to, to get entry, the key into the, the, the European market, and particularly the Dutch, it was eventually Belgium and other markets as well that we went into, but Holland was our first port of call was I, I then certified our company through FSC as being in, as being a sustainable forestry business. As I said, every tree you take out, you replace with another yeah. tree. And all our practices were sustainable. So we were very environmentally focused. So I got FSC accreditation. Now, straight away, our, our product was no longer – we were differentiated. We mm. were no longer a commodity. We were different to our competitors. And we were able to access European markets that other, mar- other companies weren't. So – that was the first thing we did was was get into international markets yep. and we started exporting. That went very well. The company took off. We grew. We had, we actually doubled the size of the business. We put in new – we bought new factories. We put in new production lines. We doubled the size of the company. Three years in. So that was 2005. Yeah. Three, ah, three years in. <laughs> phone call from our boss. The world's falling apart. What are we going to do? GFC had happened. The bubble had burst. Yeah. And the and boss being the owner. Being the owner. Yeah. And he and I sat down and so he was in he was in a state of panic. Where are we going to go? What are we going to do? Because what had happened is that many of the European banks were bailing out their governments and they and the governments were bailing out companies to keep them alive in Europe during the GFC. Mm. And a lot of these projects were government funded and that funding dried up. And we sat down and said, Well, what are we going to do? And what, what essentially happened is a lot of our competitors actually went bankrupt, went out of business. I sat down and I, I, when I oversimplified, I spun the globe. Yeah. I put a globe in front of me, spun it around, literally, and said, where in the world is there growth opportunity? And at that point in time, China was still had a, a – was growing about 9 to 11 – between 9 and 11% over a yeah. period of time, 9 to 10 to 11%. And I said, we have to get a product that we can sell into China. So that meant getting on planes, flying to China, attending some trade fairs, trying to make some contacts. And interestingly enough, we found opportunities in a couple of countries in Southeast Asia. So one of the first opportunities for us – so when you, when you cut a tree, a tree is round, and you lose the – outs- the outside is round, and there's the, the planks you cut out of a square. So you have a lot of waste, roughly anything if – you, if you're really good, slightly less than 50%. If you're not so good, yeah, wow. 50% of your product goes into waste. Yeah, wow. So we started chipping this waste because that's in, in, in sawmilling, that's a major problem is your sawdust and your waste. Yeah. Now, traditionally, we're trying to sell that into farmers to make fertilizers and composts and things like that. But it's very you make no money out of that. Mm. So it's just a way of getting rid of your problem, basically, which is your waste. The first thing we did was starting to chip that product and sell it to Japan as chips. So we got an, um, an opportunity to sell product into Japan, but still relatively low value. Yeah. We then identified that China, part of what China was doing was making furniture and exporting it around the world. 
and they had the final furniture factories. But what we did was we then became their suppliers into their supply chain. So we used the same factory, we changed the, we used the same source, but what we did is obviously change the dimensions and, and change the final product we're selling. And we actually pivoted into Southeast Asia. So we found markets in Vietnam. We're selling products into, hardwood products into Vietnam. We started selling handles, hoe handles, rake handles, pick handles. We started adding value, so we bought, we bought in additional equipment. We were making hammer handles, axe handles, uh, pick handles, all kinds of handles. So we were value adding, and we we're selling those into the United States and into Australia, interesting enough, to Bunnings. Yeah, that day. So a lot of the stuff that was in Bunnings was actually coming out of our company. So we pivoted, and we found new markets. So we survived, and we grew. And as yeah. our competitors started closing down, we started buying them and acquiring them. And we ended up, and then the good news is post-20, so I wasn't at that business until 2015, 2016 when I immigrated. Europe started coming back. So post-GFC, you got all your, uh, Europe started coming back and these guys wanted their product that we used to sell them. So we, had, we installed more capacity, we built more factories and we pivoted and we had actually quadrupled the size of the business in 10 years. That's amazing. And we had double the volume in two different markets, different products and we, we significantly grew that business. I think, like, I want to just touch on the disruptor thing, yeah. right? Like, yes. what it it's it's a, obviously a big risk, which the the founder would have had to have had full trust in yes. you to 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 make that risk and pivot in that way. What is your thought process in that? Phase? I mean, to pick up a globe and go right, where can we go global? Yes. You know, yeah. there's talk of pot- a potential mm. recession coming. Yes, in in the market. Yes. next year is that something that you buy into? I do. Yeah, but again, we we we, we already have plans and strategies which I can't talk about yet. Today. As in Mitsubishi, yeah. yeah but what? Yeah. I mean, what's your advice to those who are trying to plan for that now? So I have many um, sayings that I live by in life, and. One of those is never waste a good crisis. Mm. This and and off the back of that is always find the adversity, always find the opportunity in the adversity. Mm. So let's look for that. So let me take an, let me give you another example of, and I'll I'll stick with the, some of the previous companies I worked because that's yeah. neutral. One of the other challenges that we had in South Africa is that we had a new government, and the new government had a very social program. So they were building houses and doing all kinds of social programs, which was good because people didn't have good quality housing. But it drained all their cash. And the population in South Africa grew rather rapidly. It's sitting at about 65. At the time, it was about 45, and it grew very rapidly to 65. And it's probably officially 65, and probably unofficially about 70 million now because we have... So South Africa is the economic powerhouse of Africa, and you have lots of immigrants, and I'll call them illegal immigrants because they come across the border undocumented into South Africa because that's where you can get work. So South Africa's population grew very rapidly, but what the government didn't do was do that long-term planning and thinking that I spoke about earlier. So they didn't build any new power stations, and at some point the country was started running out of power, and we were experiencing blackouts. Now, as the CEO of a company, if if you're a private individual and you have blackouts, it's inconvenient. And you can buy a generator or you can use battery-powered lamps and lights and you can use gas to cook with. It's inconvenient. If you're running a big company, a manufacturing company with big factories, and you have you, light, lights out for eight hours a day. You need power. That is a serious, yeah, a serious cost to your business. Correct. So we were in a fortunate position as a sawmilling company in that we had we were generating a lot of sawdust and waste, which we were selling as low cost, low value product to to Japan and other places. In that, I saw the opportunity. So we were sitting with a company and we sat down. And, and these things aren't in retrospect. And when you sit on a podcast and talk about them, it sounds like it was a, a light bulb moment. No, it's not. It's many hours of 
intense, deep study, analysis, discussion, debate, mm. engagement. So, and, and some of it requires, you, you need a well thought out, carefully thought out plan and you need to go to financiers and you need backing. And if, you, if you've been, if you run your company carefully and you have a bit of a war chest, that's even better. But what we did is we, I put together, joined a few dots and power outages, massive blackouts, hours and hours a day, losing lots of money. We were sitting on a pile of sawdust and I went, can we, and what we were also doing, as, as every sawmill does, is you, you do, we have boilers because you, what you need is you burn some of that sawdust to create steam and the steam, you, you pump it into a kiln and you dry your timber. So again, it's just joining dots. Hmm. And I went, well, if, we, if we're burning, we already had boilers, we're already burning this, we're making steam, can we upscale this and generate enough and generate power? and run our business on, mm. on our waste. <laughs> and that's at the heart of where we ended up. So what we did is in South Africa... So became self-sufficient. Yeah, so going back 30 or 40 years before that, 30 or 40 years before that, many each town had its own power station used to generate its own power. These things had all been mothballed, were standing idle, and we approached two towns, Oatswaran and uh, Grahamstown, two towns in South Africa, and we said, can we buy your power station? And these were cash-strapped municipalities. We went, wow, yes, absolutely. Yeah, take it. <laughs> Got them, paid, paid a few million, got them. We dismantled them, we took them, we, and we erected them on our sawmilling sites. We then took our waste. So we had, to, we had to modify the boilers because the calorific value of sawdust is much lower than coal, and these were coal-powered fire stations. Yeah. So we had to put extra tubes into our boilers. We had to, modif- we had to ma- make some modifications. But we then, long story short, were building sawdust, burning sawdust in these boilers, generating steam, driving turbines, and generating power. But because we'd bought power stations that had run a whole city, we yeah. had excess capacity. And the government doesn't have power. So guess what? I engaged. It was a long process. Again, it took probably close to two years, 18 months to two years, negotiating with government to sell power back to, and getting agreements through what was called NERSA, the National Energy Regulator of South Africa, negotiating with NERSA to get agreements so you could sell power back onto the grid. And so what you've turned is misfortune into opportunity, adversity into opportunity. You and and that's created that, a money printing machine. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> really absolutely. <laughs> and, and the government is desperate for power. So, yeah, so, wow. we, so not only did we solve our problem, we solved our waste problem. We had enough power for ourselves, yeah. and we generated a new revenue stream, selling that power onto the grid. So, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. <laughs> yes, I agree, and I love, <laughs> I love the saying. But your uh, your way of thinking and your tenacity and your resilience, and I mean. You know, what we talked about context earlier, uh, the ability for you um, in all your career to think like this yes. is, is one that, um, I don't know, I, I, I just think it's, you know, you're one of a kind in a, in a, in a sense that it's because it, it's quite difficult because people get yeah. caught up with emotion, they get mm. caught up with, oh, my God, my business is going broke, mm. my, oh, no, what am I doing, I have to let people go. Mm. Um because you, you stick with your core, you stick with your core strategy, yes. right? And, and all those all those emotions are real, and we mm. shouldn't discount them. Yeah, but we do need to work through them. And and maintaining keeping yourself anchored to rationality is one thing. I think the other advantage that I have, and a lot of people, and we, we're all different as humans. Mm. Um, I like stimulation. I like adventure. I like new things. Mm. And I've worked in multiple industries. Now, some people choose a particular career in a particular industry, and they spend their lives there. And they they, they get profound, deep knowledge, some people in a particular industry. 
For me, it was different. For me, I enjoyed the stimulation of transferring knowledge, working between industries. But what I did gain off the back of that was exposure to multiple facets of and different ways of thinking, different industries. And I guess that the, the opportunity for any great leader is to learn from your experiences. Mm. Join the dots, piece things together, put things together, create. So, so there's two ways of looking at life. You can learn from others, and that's important to learn from others and apply that. But to be truly profound, you need to think outside the square. You need to come up with something new, that's something that's different, something that differentiates you, something that sets you apart. And what is that? And the reality is, is that the world presents us with all those opportunities all the time because everything as we know it is in a, is a state of flux. Mm. Everything is in a state of change. The world, we often laugh at people who speak about the good old days. Yeah. But actually the good, the good days lie ahead. It's how we formulate the future. It's how we look at trends, patterns, the changing world around us and, and join the dots, weave it together Take the time for introspection, reflection. Think 10, 15 years out. What's the world going to look like? What's my industry going to look like? What's going to be different? What's happening over here that's going to change what's happening over here? What's happening with social media? What's happening with artificial intelligence? How is that going to change the future? What aspect of my business can I use to pivot, to lean into that, to create an opportunity for myself? So it's it's a way of thinking. I love it. And, and you know, I mean, you know, Synergy IQ, the, the business that I run and lead, we are um, we help organisations through complex change and, yes. and transformation. And I guess everything I'm hearing right now is, you know, from from where you pivoted to the continual change, the continual growth, the continual learning, the continual investment in people um, is something that is obviously really critical to yes. your your role as a as a CEO. Yes. How do you go about managing change? I mean, f- for us, it's um, it's very important that um, people are always considered, mm-hmm. and and often what we see is company makes decision because it improves bottom line or mm-hmm. there's a, there's a potential return on investment, yes. but they've they've almost pushed upon this change onto the organisation um, of which uh, people are told to do the change yes. um, without it actually being embraced. Yes. How do, what's your thoughts on, yeah. on real quality business transformation? Yes. So as somebody that operates in the space, you will know how complex change Very, is and yeah. can be. And for me, it always starts with that formulation of the vision. Mm-hmm. So it's understanding what the future looks like. And again... And how far... Absolutely. So it depends what business you're in. Because yeah. the, the, the time frame and the horizon differs very much depending on the industry you're in. So in the forestry industry, you, the trees you plant now, maybe the next generation will harvest them. Yeah, so correct. you're thinking 40, 50 years yeah, out. Yeah. Um, in the motor industry, we're thinking 10 to 15 year cycles. So it, it depends on the industry that you're in. Mm-hmm. And the, so that, that time frame, that horizon will be different. But I think the key for a leader is to identify trends and patterns, as I said earlier, and then sit, and if you've surrounded yourself with good people, is to sit with people and debate, discuss those, because there are so many variables, there are so many unknowns, and every business has its own strengths and it has its own weaknesses. So it's really the, the, the key for me is in the formulation of the vision. And once, once and again, 
I mean, I, I would never profess to know everything about everything. So bouncing ideas off of other people, validating your thoughts, validating your opinions, getting the insights, getting the inputs, it helps create a clearer vision, but it also creates buy-in mm. and ownership. And no change will be successful unless people understand the need for change. Why, why are we changing? I've worked in many businesses where the standard answer is we've always done it this way. Correct. Why do we need to do different? Chimpanzee paradox. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, so getting people to understand the need for change allows people to embrace change easier because for many people change is, is something to be feared because it's the unknown. So making it more visible, making it more known, understanding, yes, there's risks, yes, there's unknowns, let's talk about them. Mm. And if they do happen, scenario planning. If that happens, what are we going to do? So it creates, a, I won't say a safety net because there's no such thing as, as perfect safety, but it does create a sense of uh, actually you take away a lot of the uncertainties, a lot of the unknowns. You create a sense of, yes, we're going into this with our eyes open. Yes, there are risks. This could happen. That could happen. But if that happens, we're going to do this. So so scenario plan, work, work with people. People buy in and that that is critical because – Within, within any business and even within consumers, there's early adopters and then there's late adopters. Mm. And in between, there's a range of other people. It's important to identify the early adopters in your business and to use them, develop them, grow them, give them skills, train, train them as change agents. Yes. People who can see the vision, who understand the vision, don't have only the CEO having the vision. Create a buy-in. Get other people to buy into the vision, to start sharing the vision, to start talking about the vision, to help you to grow. So for me, there's a, that's just a few without getting into a lot of details. Oh, some of the seeds of success have changed. Well, I think for us, it's you know I think you've nailed the, the, the you've hit the nail on the head in the sense of first and foremost we have to understand do we have the maturity as an organisation yes. to be able to embark on this change? Yes. And if we don't, then we need to upskill our people, yeah, that's right? right? And so you know we work with we've worked mm. with you in this capability yes. space. How do we yes. build the capability of Absolutely. our people um, in in embarking on on change? The other part is. What, what is our process in which the way in which we go about change, right? Yes. And what I'm hearing is very much, very much about that Abraham Lincoln quote, which is if you gave me, um, in to use a tree analogy, right? If you gave me eight hours to chop down a tree, I'd spend six hours sharpening my axe. It's exactly. about spending that time up front absolutely, and getting the yes. right yes. buy-in. Yeah. We use a systems thinking approach, right, which is really understanding the whole process down to the perspectives of the people, which is exactly what you said. Absolutely. We, I like the analogy of um, if we're standing at a street corner and there's a car accident in the middle of the street corner and Sean, you're on one corner of, of this intersection, I'm on the other corner, you and I both saw the exact same car accident but you saw this little black cat that ran across the road and I saw the guy in the back seat on his mobile phone or in the back car on his mobile yes. phone. Both saw the exact same car accident but from yet a different perspective and, and none of us are wrong. Absolutely. Right. So it's about drawing out those perspectives yes. and that's where you get your buy-in, yes. right? And I think the other thing um, every CEO should have is the humility. Arrogance is the most dangerous thing you can have as a CEO because coming back to none of us know, every, every business is complex. Yeah. And in your business are multiple pockets of excellence subject matter experts on areas that you do not have all the insights and all the knowledge. Yeah. So respect people, no matter where they sit in the organization, no matter how low down they are, they are potentially subject matter experts and they could identify challenges, problems or obstacles that you may not have thought of. Yeah. So you, that consultation process and identifying huge. all the options and all the risks and 
consulting, talking to people. Correct. Getting the advice, getting the inputs, getting the opinions creates a more consolidated, sound outcome. Without doubt. Why is it that there are many leaders, I won't, I'm not going to point fingers anywhere, but there are many leaders that, you know, when going and in, uh, embarking on transformation or change in their organisation, they um, they don't believe in the, the building of the maturity of the organisation in, in, in the way in which it receives change. It's a real cultural change, right? Absolutely. It's Because, like, I mean, we've all been through change, especially in the large corporate space yes. where, you know, turnover increases, engagement drops, you know, processes and systems are up the wazoo. Like no one really knows yes. what's going on. Yes. It effectively costs you more money than what you actually set out to do. So building that change, uh, that change maturity yes. will save you money. It does. Absolutely. And I, I just don't understand yeah. why. Like, yeah. I don't understand. Um, I mean, it, it seems like, you know, you're, I'm preaching to the choir with yes. you, but it, it is very common that there are leaders who are not looking at building the capability yes. of their people. Mm. What is your suggestion or your advice to those leaders? Yeah. So, Daniel, I think the other the other challenge that we have as companies is that typically companies are good at what they do yeah. based on past experience. But the past is not necessarily a predictor of the future. Correct. And people may need to, we may need to adopt new ways and different ways of doing things or our cu customers and consumers' expectations may be changing and they want a different way of being served or supported or their expectations are changing. So there's, there's, a, there's a, an element of also understanding that, but it's coming back to people and people have skills that are relevant to their jobs. Change management is not a skill that a lot of us have. And as, as, as a senior leadership team or as, as a CEO and a senior leadership team, you can develop a great vision and the gap between the vision and where you are is what needs to be filled. And that requires new skills, new competencies. But before you get there, the process of managing change is a skill that a lot of companies don't have and a lot of people don't have. That's where companies like yourself come in. Yep. If you're a, and if you're a large organization and you've got deep pockets and you can afford to build that capability internally, that's great because it's something, I believe it's a life skill that every yep. CEO and every senior manager should have. So it's something we should train is change management. 100%. If you don't have access to that, engage with a company like yourself. Bring in experts who understand change management because the risks of failure, and your point earlier, exceed the costs Without doubt. Absolutely. Oh, the amount of times we've been called in because we're two million over budget, can you come in and help us out? Like it's it's yeah. um, it's actually scary yes. in, in somewhat. Someone, um, I've, I've explained it uh, in a way that, you know, if you, and, and to your point, you outsource logistics, right? Yes. Because like, we're not a company that does logistics, so let's outsource it. And well, you're fine with that. Yeah, that's fine. Like <laughs> no worries, we can change it. Yeah. But, but when it comes to change, I think it's an, it's it's weird because it's like, well, we should really know that. Like yes. we that, that's change yeah. is something that I can yes. do or any one of our, yes. our people can do. And wherever the attitude is like we are change experts, we – absolutely our job is to not make you money but yes. to save you money that's right, right. like that's yes. the if you, if you treat your people correctly if you have the right processes and systems in place if you have um if you have the right structures in place in which change is enabled yes right then you're on the right you path improve to. the chances of your change being successful correct in in a, in a in a level of magnitude and i guess the the often people can and some people are good at doing the vision part but there's always typically if you do if you do your planning if there's typically a gap between the end state and where you currently are, 
and managing people through that change management is where most change fails. Correct. And then companies fail. Correct. So let's not underestimate the importance of change management and change management skills and having a proper process that's founded and rooted in solid theory. I love it. Do you want a job? (laughs) 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 Come work for us, uh, Sean. You've changed the world. Um, Let's keep going through your career. So, I mean, Maslow's hierarchy of needs kicks into place when you decide that Australia is, is your new home. Yeah. Tell us about your journey over here. Okay. So the good news about the jobs that I had is that I'd I'd reached a point of self-actualization. And how you know when you've reached self-actualization is that when somebody comes and offers you a lot more money and you go, you know what? I'm actually fulfilled. I'm satisfied. I'm I'm engaged. I'm enthusiastic. I'm passionate. I'm enjoying what I'm doing. I don't need the money. (laughs) Thank you very much. And and you you can see the fruits of your success and people around you engaged and people around you are successful and they're happy then you know that you're at the pinnacle. And I, I would like to think that I was at that point in South Africa. Mm. But what happened is that myself and my family went into what in Australia would be an equivalent is a big W mm. on a Sunday afternoon. And while we were in there, I heard a crack which sounded like a door falling on tiles. But having a military background, I knew what that was. Sounded like barging in. Yeah. And these guys were coming mm. in with guns and I, and I grabbed my two daughters and I first ran to behind a counter. And as we got in behind the counter and I pushed them down, I realized I was in the watch and jewelry section. And I knew that it was the absolutely wrong place to be. That's because if they're going to hit in a store, that's where they're going to go for. So I grabbed my daughters and I arms around them and my, my wife and we ran across the aisle. And these guys were shooting, opening fire. Again, as I said before, everyone screams and falls flat on the floor. And I got into the clothing section. And I was pulling clothes off the off the off the racks and covering my daughters and my wife so that there were bullets and glass fragments were flying all over the place. The guys were shooting in the shelves and glass was flying all over, shooting through the shelves and you know you can imagine the chaos. Wow. And my instinct was to get on my phone and phone triple O. South Africa is a different number, but same thing. Yeah, yeah. And South Africa has what they call a, a, a flying squad, which is like a SWAT team. And I, got, and I phoned that number and I said, there's an armed robbery, it's called pick and pay, at this pick and pay. And the the person who took the call was still asking questions and then she heard gunshots in the background. These guys were on automatic. Fire and she got her, she, so she got her commanders on, on the, on, and I was talking to them and these guys saw that, so they started shooting at me. So I, I slid the phone away from me and rolled under one of the, the, the centre aisles. But the police arrived very quickly. They say the flying, they call them the flying squad because they literally come screaming with sirens and they trapped these robbers inside. So the police were shooting in at them and these guys were shooting out at them and all of us were in, in, oh, in the middle. Jesus. And this is on a Sunday afternoon, peaceful, supposedly peaceful Sunday afternoon shopping. And that, so, so as a result of that, my daughter suffers from post-traumatic stro- stress disorder uh, still till today. Obviously, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what, what happened is that we realized and I was a guy who was like, I'm always positive about life and it'll get better. And I realize it's not getting better, it's getting worse. Mm. And South Africa, unfortunately, is the kind of country where you'll stop at a traffic light and somebody will smash your window and stick a gun against your head. Yeah. You'll be lucky if they don't shoot you and they take your car and drive off or put you in the boot. And yeah, uh, Gabriel is a family and, um, from Brazil. Yes. I've heard the same similar, stories coming. Absolutely. Sao Paulo. Yeah. Rio, similar. Yeah. So I... She'll understand what I'm talking about. Yeah. But it got to a point where I said, okay, this is where that Maslow higher where safety and security needs start taking priority over self-actualization and everything else. 
So we made the decision to emigrate, came to Australia. Quite a process to get into Australia, mate. Yeah, because you were at a certain age, weren't you? you That's right. So I was at a certain age that I was over the, the 45, which is where you start losing points. So I needed extra points. I was but why Australia over any other country in the world? I mean, you've, been, you've been yeah. to Europe. And yeah, I've, I've been all over. So yeah. there are a couple of uh, considerations. Yeah. My sister lives in Canada and yeah. she was very, very keen for us to come there. Yeah. And the climate just doesn't work for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whereas Australia is very much like South Africa. Yeah, okay. I've traveled extensively across Australia and everywhere I've been in Australia looks like somewhere in South Africa. So the country, the culture – Australians are great people. I like the culture. They're engaging. They're friendly. Uh, it's a great. The lifestyle in Australia is great. It's a beautiful country, and it's it's similar. It's on the same latitude. In fact, the city where I live, Port Elizabeth, is on exactly the same latitude as Adelaide. So it was like moving halfway around the globe, but on the same latitude. Everything yeah, else wow. is the same. That's so, amazing. Yeah. And because I'd, uh, I was over the age of forty-five, and you start losing points after that, I was close to fifty. Yeah. I needed a few extra points, and the South Australian government kindly has. Uh, uh, skills and I came on a, a scare skills visa and the Australian government gave South Australian government gave me a few extra points so obviously I had to live and work in, in South Australia and that's how I ended up here beautiful now we're going to claim you as one of our own right? I'm now proudly an Australian citizen <laughs> yeah. and very proudly a South Australian yeah excellent very yeah. good and so from there, you, you've moved over. I mean, that's a big, big move, but obviously a very much needed move for you and yes. your family. Yeah. Everyone's fine now. They're all. Oh, I love it. Yeah, we're very happy here. Yeah. So my daughters went back during COVID. They were still studying at uni in South Africa. Well, we didn't know what would happen. And they went back in February of 2020 to enroll at the university for the, for the, for the year. Yeah. And Scott Morrison closed the borders and they got locked out. And they were stuck in South Africa for nine months before we could get oh, them back. Oh, no. And during that time, <laughs> with all the lockdowns in South Africa as well, crime spiraled because people had no food, they couldn't work. And that's where the social- Omnicron started in there yeah, exactly. as well. Bloody hell. Yeah, so social security in South Africa is not so great. So people were starving and hungry as a result of lockdowns and not being able to work. So crime spiked and my daughters were stuck there. So they had a bit of a traumatic experience post us moving to Australia, but it sure cured them. They are don't even I went back to South Africa for my niece's wedding two weeks ago. And I said, you want to come with us? No, no. <laughs> we're not leaving Australia. No. No. <laughs> so, yeah, no, we're very happily, we, uh, happily ensconced. Not for us anymore. Yeah. And I am conscious of your time, but so yeah. I, want to, uh, I want to just quickly dive yeah. in. You did join a, a company, and this is where we talked about the robotics earlier yes. about um, yeah. it was HM, HMPS, HMPS, which is a South Australian company. Literally a stone's throw from my office at Mitsubishi now. Yeah, great. In, at the airport, export at the airport, park. Yeah, yeah. And you took on the role and robotics. I mean, this is where your love of robotics yes. and automation was sort of – I mean, you would have Absolutely. had some love before there, but this yes. just sort of accentuated a bit yeah. more. Yeah. So I must say that my engagement with robotics started before that. So yeah. particularly when I was in the sawmilling industry and we had to do some very rapid and major expansion, most of the, the sawmilling equipment or some of the world's best sawmilling equipment comes out of Germany and Finland and countries like that. And we actually embraced a fair bit of automation at, this, at that time already, yeah, which was unusual for South African businesses and part of what gave us a bit of a – and it, so yeah, labor yeah. is cheap in South Africa, so yeah. most companies tend to – Just stick with their labor. Exactly. Yeah. And <clears throat> with my engagement with those Finnish and German companies, I, I found – I saw an opportunity in that as well. So we, we not only doubled the size of our company initially, we grew more after that, but we embraced technology. And I saw the power of technology and what it can do. And, I mean, even in the forestry industry – and I'm going back probably 15, 20 years now, a lot of trees in South Africa were still filled with chainsaws. Now, that's a, a lot quicker than the axe, the neighbouring Lincoln's yeah. axe you were talking yeah. about. 
But when you're felling trees with a chainsaw and there's technology out there, and we used to call them fellow bunches in those yeah. days, and we bought technology in from the United States. They were the best in that space, and yeah. we brought in these big John Deere's. And this thing would grab a big tree and cut it off in seconds yeah. and, you know, grab four, five or six trees in the time that one human couldn't even cut down a tree in a chainsaw. Yeah. I've seen I've seen a YouTube clip on that and it strips all That's the... What, absolutely. Yeah. And it cuts a, to the right lengths as well. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and all of that happens in, in minutes. Yeah. That, I find that therapeutic watching that. But no, it's not, I mean, so it, what in dirt, the forestry. Yeah, right? so, so, <laughs> so I talk a lot about the manufacturing inside, but even all the way back into our primary industry, which is forestry, the embracing of automate, of technology allowed us to significantly improve our productivity and profitability as a business. So coming back to this, this company in Adelaide, and I think that's the opportunity for us as Australia is the opportunity. And we, we worked primarily with food processing companies, a couple of big ones around the country, but milk industry, food packaging processing, putting a lot of automation robotics into that. What it does is it would uh, enable and allow Australia to compete on the world stage mm. and to compete against low-cost countries. So we tend to think that manufacturing is dead in Australia because all our costs are too high. But if we embrace technology, we can improve our efficiencies and our productivity that much that we can actually compete with low-labor-cost countries. And it allows us to retain and maintain a level of manufacturing in this country that allow, allows people not to do mundane, dark, and dirty work, but better-skilled, higher-quality work, earn better money, and allow us to still do manufacturing in this country. So, there again, through my exposure to that and my ability to share that with some other companies, we, have, we can use technology yeah in ways that we haven't thought before which is what you're doing at mitsubishi now so from yes. my understanding you joined mitsubishi after a couple of years as yes. ceo at the uh, hmps yes. and um you were director of after sales which um and from that did such a remarkable job that you became one of the fastest ever promotions to a ceo <laughs> of mitsubishi's history is that correct that is correct yes yeah so, so i was very fortunate so one of the things that i realized coming to australia and being an unknown factor it's quite an interesting thing, and Gabrielle will know she, she's an immigrant as well. When you immigrate, you lose everything. You lose, yeah. you lose your history, you lose mm. your culture, you lose your friends, you lose your family, you lose everything. You come to a new country in an unknown quantity, and a lot of the companies, and they, they're fairly large companies in, in other countries, are, are not even known. I mean, I'm talking about pick and pay, mm. which is a retailer the same size as Coles or even bigger. Yeah. Unknown in Australia. So if yeah. you worked for Pick and Pay, you said, I worked for Pick and Pay. I go, who's that? Who's that? You guys say Big W, like you said. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so that's why I use the Big yeah. W reference to go, yeah. okay, well, okay, that benchmarks things in people's minds. So yeah. what I did realize is I would have to, and I'd been a CEO and CEO for, for many, many years, 10, 15, 20 years before that. But I took a step back and took the director of after sales role to get back into a large size organization. Mm. And by my entire career has been in big corporates, big companies. So I find myself comfortable in that space. And I game. wanted to get back yeah. into that. So I took the director of after sales role and we set about changing a few things about the way we did things and was uh, remarkably successful, fortunately. And Well, I think you changed from after sales and you made a pre-sales, didn't you? Like you spec well, absolutely. up the car at the start. Yeah, so, so that, that, yeah, exactly. So that, that, that's seems one, so simple. Yeah. So that's one example and I'll, yeah. and I'll talk about that in a moment. But after sales, we, we set after sales on a, on a new path. And I've, that was in 27 and we're about now four or five years yeah. ago. And after sales in, in Mitsubishi, and I guess this is what putting the right systems and processes, creating sustainability, it's not about the individual. It's about building the processes and the systems and building the skills and the strength and the capability. So Correct. 
if I if I rewind for a moment, the company that I worked for in South Africa is still wildly successful even till today. So if you put in the right processes and systems and you you upskill people, you embed that, it becomes the new way of doing business. Yeah. It's like that spinning wheel. It takes hard work to get it spinning. And once it's going, you, you just need to maintain the yeah. momentum. And it's like that with after sales in, in Mitsubishi. Since I've joined till today, it's just on a steep growth trajectory ever since. And I'll give you the example that you mentioned as, as one of the ways in how we flipped our way of thinking. Now, in the motor industry, it's called after sales. And it's typically because it's things that you sell after you've bought the car. Yeah. And that's the way. So after I spent 50 grand, do you want to yes. spend $5,000 more? It's like, well, exactly. I don't have that money. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so what you do is, is typically, and a large part of after sales is accessories. Yeah. And in Australia, that's big business. So you sell a, a ute, a triton, and then people start adding accessories. Yeah. And they customize it and they personalize it and they add all the stuff and that's after sales and it's added after the sale and it's, and it's revenue for the company. But one of the, 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 the opportunities for us, or one of the challenges for us was that uh, we, we, we wanted to extend our model range. And what we wanted to do is, instead of letting the customer add all these accessories afterwards, is to actually build them into the vehicle up front. Yeah. So instead of after sales, making it pre-sales. Mm. And we went so far as we actually used a package of accessories, which we put onto a Triton, that we actually created a distinctive model called GSR. Mm. Mm. And we added all the accessories up front. We put the roll tops on and we put the roll bars on and we put the bull bars on and we put the fender and, 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 and. And we put it all on, on, on up front and we created a, a new model called new. the GSR. Yeah, and people bought it. And the people bought it. And it's financed at the same it's, – so it's part of the vehicle. It's all financed within your finance. You don't have to go and spend – take out $5,000 yeah, or $6,000 yeah. or $10,000 afterwards to – to add this stuff, it's actually all built into the vehicle. Fabulous. And it becomes a st- distinctive model. So it's a different way of thinking. It's flipping it over and putting, making it pre-sales, not after-sales. Mm. And there, there are many things that we did. Many, That's just yeah. one example of many of those. And then you got the nod in March 2020. You, yeah, that, that was very interesting. So I was interviewed and during the February, March of, of, of 2020 for the CEO role. And that's after I'd been in the after-sales role for about eight and a half months. Yeah. And was successful. I got the job and was put into the role. Well, I, it was, I was told that I was successful on the 15th of March. And on the 20th of March that year, Scott Morrison announced <laughs> we're shutting the country down. <laughs> Bloody hell. And, okay. I'm getting post-traumatic stress we, thinking about it. We've, we've all forgotten about COVID <laughs> now. But I, I remember the chairman of the dealer council phoning me and saying, I was going to congratulate you, but I'm going to commiserate. <laughs> yeah. You're taking on, and I took on the role of CEO from the 1st of April during a total lockdown, during a shutdown. And I guess, again, my my... Previous experiences. Yeah, I mean, you've dealt with recessions. And Absolutely. So that's the other advantage of having worked in countries. You'd be one of the very rare that would have dealt with the 2008 recession. Well, that's fortunate in that not not only the 2008 recession. So the South African economy is a lot more volatile mm. than 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 many other stable, mature economies. So we we it's a lot more cyclical, and you have a lot more depressions and recessions and downturns than than you would in in a place like Australia. I think at the time Australia hadn't seen a recession for 27 years or something. Yeah, wow. yeah. So I had, through the exposure that I'd had, been exposed to some fairly significant things. So I guess that helped a lot because people went into panic stations that, as is a normal response. What are we going to do now? We can't sell cars. We shut down. Dealers can't sell cars. How are we going to survive as a company? What are we going to do? 
And it was really how do we pivot, how do we find the opportunity in the adversity? And that was getting people into more rooms and going, okay, slow down, stop, let's pause, let's talk this through. What are we going to do? What What is known? What is unknown? And and that's, and I mean, at the time we did lots of things like if people can't fetch their cars, they can't go to a dealer, can't fetch a car, we need to get online and we need to get online fast. Mm. And how do we provide opportunities for people, 3D configurators, to see the car, to spin it, to turn it this way, that way, add accessories, look at what the car costs, add buy the car online how do we create virtual tours virtual experiences mm. for car buying experiences how do we create virtual deliveries you don't need to go to a dealer how do we deliver the cars to people's homes how do we start servicing and then some of the lockdowns were, were lifted but only emergency people could and how do we service their cars at home how do we keep their cars on the yeah so we did a lot of things we pivoted very rapidly very and that was good for us mm. Because instead of sitting back and going, oh, the end of the world has come, you know, let's go into the corner and yeah. cover ourselves. We're in. moving into a new world. Absolutely. How, how do we how do we lean into that? How do we embrace technology? How do we create new systems? How do we create new processes? How do we respond to this? How do we keep our business alive? So we, we did a lot of things. We fast-tracked a lot of things that we knew were coming in the future that we had to do straight away. How did you keep people calm in that time? Mm. I think, like, you talked about leadership. Mm. like, everyone, just hold on. Yeah. Calm your farm. <laughs> How did you um I think that's the job of leadership. Yeah. Is my mother used to I you talked about influence of parents in life and she said when all others around you are losing their heads, that's the time to keep your head. Yeah. And and that's what a, a good leader does, is that when everyone else is panicking, is to keep their head. And a lot of that is doing exactly what I said, slow it down. Slow it down. Just Stay calm, guys. Let's sit together. Let's talk this through. Let's work this through. Let's appeal to the logical. Let's talk to the left side of the brain. Mm. Find facts. Talk to that. So it's it's shifting people away from the, the, the emotional side of your brain to the logical side of your brain. And that's your job as a leader. And can you explain how you go about that and yeah. how, you, how you work? I mean, directly with your leadership team. Yes. In, I mean, because yeah. accountability comes into this as well. How do Absolutely. you hold people accountable yet keeping them um, focused on what you're actually now trying yeah. to do? Yeah. I think it's like I use this example. I've, I've said this before and I think what you're saying is very similar to this example. I, I went to Fiji recently mm-hmm. and um, – was got on the boat. Like we went out to one of the yes. islands, and on, on the way back, on the way back, it started raining. Like it was yes. chaos. It was a big yacht. Mm. Yeah, sails going yeah. everywhere. Wind was blowing. Mm. Rain was going everywhere. Mm. It was about fifty people on this mm. yacht. Staff are running around mm. everywhere trying to get mm. everything. And people are covering bags. So it was mm. like a bit chaotic. And yeah. I look over, and, and I look over at the captain, and he's standing there behind the big steering wheel, mm. calm as ever. Yeah, looking off into the distance, yeah. going, "That's where I'm going." Yeah. Right, and and like. I instantly yes. just felt yeah. calm, yeah. right, just by his demeanor. And it's kind of like what yes. you're saying is, is yes. this ability to to stay calm. Yes. That's a skill set. Like that's yeah. really it is. that's really tough. And, and, and then not to mention mm. holding other. I mean, you've said it time and time again, surround yourself with mm. extremely intelligent people. Yes. Mm. So holding other extremely yeah. intelligent mm. and great people accountable yes. and calm as yes. well, I think yeah. it's – not to mention the rest of the organization. I yeah. think it's just this mm. layer cake and yeah. it's it, it, it's. I think you've been through a lot that you're able to do that. What's your advice for those who aren't that experienced yes. in their job? So I'm going to rewind all the way back to my youth Yeah, because as I said earlier, my life, everything in life prepares you for the next thing in life. 
So my military experience at the age of yeah. 17, 18 yeah. gave me the opportunity. And, and the military do this. So before you, you ever are in battle and under live fire, you actually under friendly live fire. So they literally, you will leopard crawl through and they'll take a machine gun and shoot over the top of you and you'll leopard crawl through under barbed wire with your pack, with your rifle. You will, you will simulate, you will practice. And so South African Army had a, a, an expression, train, train hard, fight easy. So mm-hmm. using those experiences stand you in good stead later in life because you always have that as a benchmark and go, is this worse than that? No, <laughs> I need to. <laughs> this is not worse than that. I need to stay calm. So, yeah. so I think leadership is also about pre- creating perspective. Now I want to come back to your captain analogy. The reason that that captain was calm and he had his demeanor was because he knew of the capability of that, ve- of that vessel. He knew what that vessel was capable of. So that starts all the way back into it's designed for, it's built for, it can do this. Mm-hmm. But then he's probably been in other storms. He's been exposed before. He knows what that, that – and that's, for me, about life experience. That's why I go out there and get as many experiences as I can yeah. because everything in life prepares you for something else. So it starts in, in the logic and in the fact, this, I, and, you, and in training and in experience and in skill, and I know that this vessel is capable of doing this and it can withstand that, and I know how to navigate and I don't need this and I can do that and I can navigate with my compass, I can do these things. So a lot of that is about equipping yourself up front with the necessary skill, the expertise, and that's why I continue to train and learn and go to universities and study and attend programs. It's all about equipping yourself to deal with a wide variety of things. And it's and it, it, it extends into your leadership team. So it's mm. having your leadership team expose themselves, get trained, get experienced. And each of them is a subject matter expert in their own right. So again, if you're in the military and you gain into a particular situation, you know that I have in my small group, I have a, a gunnery expert, I have a signals expert, I have a medic. If mm. this situation happens, and, and lots of them have a guy that's embedded. So if we get in there and I need artillery, I've got a guy who can call up artillery who can position us, position yeah. them, and I know he's not going to put the bomb on our head. Or I know that I can call up air assets and I have somebody who can talk to that pilot and can give that pilot the info. So, so it's, it's, it's quality training, mm, okay. it's trust, it's skills, it's expertise, and it's about, as a leader, it's about bringing that all together. And in those times of crisis, that's when things really get tested to the ultimate. But, and it's about keeping a calm, clear head. So do you ever get stressed? I do. I think, I think it would be abnormal for anybody not to, to suffer mm. stress. But then it's again, it's always about, okay, this is the situation. This is what's happening. This is, I've seen this before. This is what's happened or I haven't seen this before. So what do I need to equip myself with? What do I need to do? So it's again, mm. it's trying to shift yourself from that adrenaline-driven animal brain into the left logic. Mm. It's, it's, it's about... How quickly do you notice the trigger of stress? And and what do you normally do? You talk yeah. about left brain and, and is there something that you do that you – like do you meditate? Do you go, right, I've got a deep breathe here or – Yeah. So 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 deep breathing is is, is a good is a good box breathing. So yeah, box breathe, breathing, yeah. Four, yeah, four, breathing. Four, 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 yeah. four, four, four. Hold it. Four, four, four. Breathe out. Four, four, yeah. four. Yeah. And, and, and that physiologically – now, interesting enough, I was at Oxford earlier this year and uh, doing a, a high-performance leadership program. And guess what? 
one of the things they actually had a professor talking about box breathing because it's been proven and there's lots of research around it that the physiology of box breathing forces slows your breathing forces you to calm down helps your, your brain stabilize and focus and recenter think logically so yeah so it's absolutely so it's using skills techniques to create that ground yourself earth yourself calm yourself force yourself to think logically slow down your heartbeat slow down your pulse rate focus it's hard though it's hard like it's, it, it's really hard and especially when you're always staring at numbers that yeah. don't suggest don't tell you the story that you want to see right don't panic <laughs> yeah i think don't it's panic. the and it's this, it's the unknown mm. it, i mean look i am an entrepreneur and yeah. i've started this business it's mm. this, this constant unknown mm. Yeah. Of, of what's coming next and Absolutely. Um, how do you prepare. And yeah. I'm green mm. in, in the sense yeah. that um, I don't have the experience of, of being a, a CEO in any, 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 yeah. any other mm. business. So I'm, I'm actually just learning as I yeah. go here. Well, it may be different for other people, but for myself, to be honest, I, I have sleepless nights. I wake yeah. up at 2 o'clock in the morning, things going around in my mind, yeah. going around in my brain. That's not a good time to think. No. Because things kind of magnify and amplify themselves. Correct. So, yeah, if to to say that it's all happy sailing is not is no. not for me anyway. That wouldn't be honest. There are there are stressful periods. There are stressful times, and these grey hairs are earned. <laughs> Being a CEO is a stressful job. You got grey hairs at least. Mine <laughs> fell out. Um, <laughs> right. We have. Well, we've almost hit the two hour mark. I think we've we've uh, we're about the two hour mark now. Yeah? Ten minutes away. Well, yeah. we're going to hit the two-hour mark. Yeah. So, I do. I do yeah. want to ask yes. just one more question. Mm-hmm. I think I feel like we could speak for three or four <laughs> hours. But um, your family is one thing mm-hmm. that is so dear to me and core to my yes. um, existence. Mm-hmm. And then, <clears throat> and you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. the you know the move here to Australia mm-hmm. to keep your family mm-hmm. safe. You also mentioned earlier that you know your your, your daughters were eight and ten and. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't. They didn't really know whether their dad was coming coming home from work, and you're away for a while. One thing that I've learned is that I'm trying to achieve something mm. that is my vision. Mm. It's not so, it's my family's yes. vision. It's not yes. my children's vision. Mm. It's my vision of what I want to create. And yet, at the same time, I'm trying to cultivate mm. a loving and thriving family yes. life. Mm. I find it difficult mm. in the sense that I'm passionate about mm. both things. Yes. And I just like just continuously con- well, clash in, in a sense in, from my decision-making point mm. of view. How do you manage mm. that thought? It seems yeah. to me as if you're now so much more family-focused than Maybe your early yes. years, so you've learned some things. Yes. Or two. So, how do you f- manage that now? What's yeah. your thought? So, so, Daniel, to me, my family is just as important. Yeah. And so important that I made, and I, if I could say that with, with Coca Cola, I was flying and I was flying high. Yeah. And my career was on a rocket trajectory and I was mm. doing very well. Yeah. But I made a very significant decision to change my lifestyle very significantly because the company that I then joined was. I'd been in global roles and traveling yeah. multiple countries all over the world, living in fancy hotels, mm. flying on airplanes, having a great life. My family were at home alone and I had these daughters who were 8 and 10 who hadn't 
as I said, have a father who yeah. worked a regular day. There, at that point in life, I, I did a reset and I took a job with a South African-based company which involved very little at that point and yeah. changed eventually, very little global or international travel. And it was a, it was a serious adjustment. Mm. It was a serious adjustment. But for me, the integrity of the family and keeping the family together and whole was more important than the career. So I made some big calls. Mm. Coming to Australia was for safety and security. It was for giving my family a safe environment, but also for giving my daughters a future. And I think Australia has a lot of future and a mm. lot of opportunity, and it was creating that opportunity for them. I have to be honest, I earned, a lot, I earned at that point a lot less money in Australia than I was earning in yeah, South Africa. No doubt. So I had to make some material financial sacrifices. And But that balancing is, is always challenging. And even now with the role that I have, I'm doing a fair amount of traveling. It's very important that I'm the, the time I have with my family is high-quality, high-value time. And there was a bit of adjustment for my wife as well because, as you said, it was my goals and my aspirations and my career. And at a point in time, the family felt like they were being left out of those plans and they weren't part of those plans. So what we, what we do is create one very significant quality family time together when I'm, in, when I'm in the country and I turn down lots of social invitations and invitations to, so that I can spend that quality time to rebuild with the family. And then the other thing that we do is we all like travel, we global citizens, yeah. is that we have family holidays. Now, COVID interrupted that for two or three years and at the moment my daughter, my, one of my daughters is knee-deep in a PhD in mathematics and the other one's knee-deep in a master's in psychology. So they're both writing dissertations at the moment. Yeah, well. But – Early next year, we'll be doing another overseas. So we used to do lots of overseas families. So the one advantage of flying all over the world is you, you, you get a bit of Voyager miles or frequent yeah. flyer miles, and we redeem those and help to create special family holidays yeah, that are memorable and that we use as a base, as a reference, as a, as a foundation. And a recharge. For, that's yeah. right, yeah. No, I love it. I love it. I think, um, yeah, I think your life isn't complete unless you've got that, that – for me, family is critical. Yeah, As I said, I've made some very significant life decisions around family. You have. So just some closing thoughts before we get into some – some. Uh, what, if you were to encapsulate your entire journey of up to yes. up today in one, in one lesson or yes. one message, what do you think that would be? Life's an echo. What you put in is what you get back. I live life at 110%. I put everything into it. If I have a job, I pour my enthusiasm, my engagement, my passion. I'm totally focused and life gives back. Whatever you put in, you get back. I love it. What excites you about the future? The future, my mother had another expression. The future is like a field of snow, like a field of driven snow. You can go wherever you want. You can make your own footprints and you can go wherever you want. Life is in your hands. You can make of life what you want of it. Mm. The future is exciting and full of opportunity and you need yeah. to create your own opportunities. Yeah, I love it. Rightio, some quick fire questions yes. just to uh, round off the conversation. What are you? We're big readers here. What are you reading right now? What I'm reading right now is um, the opportunities of commercialising artificial intelligence. Ooh. 
So right now we is that a book or is that a no? It's, it's like actually a, it's a very interesting. It's a McKinsey McKinsey, uh, McKinsey study report, that they've yeah. done, and it's really about looking at it from a business point of view. What are the opportunities for us? And if if I had to say what's the single biggest emerging technology, it's AI. Without doubt. And AI at this point, and there's a lot of debate around the world, is that there's high risk with AI depending on where you go and how you use it. But there's also significant opportunity in AI. Mm. And what are those opportunities? How can we commercialize them and how can we apply them to make our lives quicker, faster, better and easier? Brilliant. What's one self-development book that you feel that stands out from the rest? I think the book that had the single biggest impact on my life when I was a young senior senior executive at a young age. Um, I read the book uh, From Good to Great by Jim Collins when yeah. I was in that significant transformation that we were doing at Coca-Cola. So there I was sitting early 30s, very early 30s, senior executive looking at the significant transformation of an organization across the continent of Africa. And I was looking for guidance. Yeah. And ideas, and the book by Jim Collins from Good to Great was very significant, and still stands out as one of the, the most yeah, significant. Yeah, you, you still revert to it to these yeah, days. I do. Yeah, occasionally. Well, you mentioned the flywheel. Uh, yes, before that's right. <laughs> what is uh, what is one lesson that's taking you the longest to learn? I have an agile and a quick brain, so I engage mouth before I engage brain sometimes. Yeah. So, <laughs> what what are the the lesson that I've really taken the longest to learn is to as my mother used to say is think twice as slowly as you speak yeah i mean speak twice as slowly as you think 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 more speak think, less yeah your two yeah. ears one yeah. mouth sort that's of right thing. yeah exactly do you um actually, I, i'm just gonna divert one yes. real quick and yes. just ask you like you're a very yeah like you said quick thinker and agile mm-hmm. thinker and, and and probably have the ability to see things quicker than what most mm-hmm. people do how do you hold yourself in a moment where you have to let the other people see what you what you already see? If you had asked me what one of my biggest frustrations in life is, is that I have to slow myself all the way back and spend a lot of time explaining what to me seems obvious. Mm. And uh, yeah, so that that is one of the one of the uh, biggest lessons in life is to succeed, you need to bring other people along with you. Yeah. They need to get to the same insights as you. And not that you're necessarily right. And also listening to their inputs and their ideas yeah. along the way. So forcing yourself to slow down and to step back and to slow the process and give time for consultation because that's the way you get buy-in and that's the way you get understanding and that's the way you get other in- inputs and insi- in- insights that are quite important yeah. to formulate a good opinion. Absolutely. If you could have a coffee or a tea with one of the – with a current or historical figure, who would it be? That would actually be, um, I think your namesake, a guy called Daniel. Yeah. So Daniel is a figure, it's a book in the Bible. Yeah. And Daniel. Through the lions then. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So now, but Daniel, and that's not the aspect of Daniel I like, was that it said that Daniel, and this was the, the testimony of the king at the time, Nebuchadnezzar, he said he has the spirit of God in him. He has deep insight and deep knowledge and he's filled with wisdom. I'd like to 
spend time with that guy getting more understanding on how to get more and deeper insights and more wisdom. Well, you just did two hours. <laughs> <laughs> no, very good. Thank you, Daniel. <laughs> yeah. um, what is some of the best advice that you've ever received? Probably from my father. He would say if something's worth doing, it's worth doing properly. Yeah. So if you do something, put your mind to it, put your heart to it, and it's worth doing properly. Don't do it half-assed, absolutely. Exactly. What's uh, one habit that holds you back the most? Engaging mouth too quickly. Yeah, the same one. <laughs> so probably that. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really about, um, as I said, my, my mind works quickly and I tend to just blurt it out there and let's go and let's make it happen. So I'm very much a, a make it, let's make it happen person. Yeah. And it's about… That's just, because you've already seen what can happen. That's right. right. But it's yeah. about remembering that other people don't necessarily get it as quickly as you do and you need to bring them along in the process. Which is one of my questions, which is yes. what frustrates you the most, which you've already answered. Yes. <laughs> Although the, the, the other frustration I have in life is more mundane and that's traffic, traffic, traffic. Oh, yeah. What a waste of life sitting in traffic. <laughs> doesn't make sense, does it? Yeah. Um, if you could pay… One or someone to do one of your chores, what would it be? What chore would it be? Growing up as a kid, uh, we had a large property and my dad was a farmer, yeah. large property with lots of grass to be cut. I used to hate cutting the grass. Yeah. Even when it was on the right on my way, it yeah. used to take hours to do it. Um, I guess to, uh, in, a, in a modern day context, uh, washing cars and washing cups, coffee cups, luckily we have machines to do both. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> What's one word that you hate? It can't be done is three words, so yeah. it's impossible. I hate the words it can't or it's impossible. Impossible. It's very there's funny. No, there's, okay. no, there's nothing that's impossible. That's right. It's um, it's very funny that you we have the same uh, – like our parents have yes. said the same thing. Probably very common, really, yeah. but you're yeah. the first person that I've met that uh, has re- re- repeated that back at me. Yeah. Uh, so what's – the first thing that you would do if you became invisible? <laughs> if I became invisible, I think I would travel around the world to all the sites that have nuclear bombs and change the codes <laughs> so that they couldn't, they couldn't blow up the world. <laughs> That's brilliant. Given all what's happening in the world and the socio-political crises and it's scary, all the latent threat of nuclear around, and I'm not talking about nuclear as an energy source, I'm about talking nuclear as a destructive force as mm. a bomb. I would go and turn all of those off. I'd change, the, scramble the codes for them. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's uh, it's a scary thought. What's the most useless talent that you have? When I was at school, we had to take one vocational subject and I took woodwork. So I learned to make furniture. I learned to be a carpenter and I learned to make furniture and I've never made a piece of furniture since <laughs> I left school. So it's a, a latent useless talent. <laughs> Right, now my favorite question of the whole podcast, what's your best dad joke? Well, if you had to ask my daughters, they'd say there's no best dad joke. They're, they're all bad. <laughs> they're all horrible. <laughs> I've seen a video clip, right, on on YouTube or whatever it is, just where like they they interview these kids and it's like with the somber music yes. and like they're going through hardship. Yeah. It's about the, the, dad, bad, the, the, bad, the, the bad, bad dad, dad jokes. jokes. <laughs> well, well seeing as, as we're talking about bad dad jokes and seeing as you want a dad joke, no. What did the baby corn say to the mama corn? What did the baby corn say to the mama, mama corn? Mama corn. Where's popcorn? 
<laughs> That's horrible. <laughs> it is horrible. It's meant to be horrible. It's great. And it's a dad joke. It's so bad. It's good. <laughs> I love it. Look, thank you so much for your time today, Sean. It's um, been an absolute uh, privilege to sit here with you and, and learn more about you and your career and your life and, and the, some of the things that you've gone through. And, um, yeah, I think I, I speak on behalf of everyone. It, it is an amazing career and you've seen some things in your life that I don't think some people, especially here in Australia, will ever see. So um, thank you for sharing us and giving us a different perspective on what that world, our bigger world looks like. Um, and kudos to everything that you and the team at Mitsubishi are doing. I, I know you've uh, turned it into one of the most profitable um, uh, site, well, Mitsubishi, Mitsubishi yeah, distributors in the world. In, least, yeah. in the world mm. And um, you guys are going from strength to strength off, off the back of the work you and your team are doing. So kudos. Thank you, Daniel. It's been a, a privilege and a pleasure to be here. I live life on fast forward. <laughs> and life has given me lots of enjoyment and satisfaction and I really had a great great ride so far. So thank you very much. Beautiful. Thanks, everyone, um, and we'll catch you next time. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the podcast all. You can check out the show notes if there was anything of interest to you and find out more about us at synergyiq.com.au. I am going to ask, though, if you did like the podcast, it would absolutely mean the world to me if you could subscribe, rate, and review. And if you didn't like it, that's all right too. There's no need to do anything. Take care, guys. All the best.